You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I am so ready. I have ice on my nipples. I am good to go. <laughs> oh, God. That's... Did you paint them red? Oh, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> this, I hope this goes on to the episode. <laughs> I think we need the nipple paint as an integral part of this particular mm. episode here. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. You're gonna win? I'm gonna dance. There's a spot open in the chorus line. We're auditioning tomorrow morning. I think you should try out. I got an audition! Okay, lady, I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I wanna see you dance, and I wanna see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. You got more natural talent when you dance than anybody I've ever seen. She's going down to the stardust. She's going to be in the show. Right? If someone gets in your way, step on them. It's not fair. It's not about fair. It's about power. You're a stripper. Don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling. She's exciting. And she's what Las Vegas is all about. The passion is real. They fall in love with you. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello. Also with us this week is Mr. Jay Bowman. Man, everyone got AIDS and shit. I should write a song about that. <laughs> I bet somebody has. This week we are talking about the 1995 film Showgirls, directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by Joe Esterhaus. The film was a follow-up of sorts of their 1992 hit film Basic Instinct. It stars Elizabeth Berkley as Nomi Malone, a volatile young woman from different places who comes to Las Vegas to dance. There she meets scads of colorful characters while going from stripper to showgirl in a wild rags-to-riches tale. Heather, when was the first time you saw Showgirls, and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw Showgirls was back sometime in the late 90s when I was in high school, and I'm pretty sure it was one of those things where either my parents were on a date or I couldn't sleep, so I got up to see what was on cable. Uh, and, of course, on paid cable was Showgirls, and I was like, ooh, I remember there being so much controversy about it, and so I watched it, and I thought it was alternately compelling and horrible. Like I thought it was like a really weird amalgam of, of great things. And terrible things. And that was my initial impression. Watching it for this show, maybe the first time I've ever seen it in its entirety from start to finish in order. But I know I saw it on cable a lot because it, it when it first hit cable, it was on all the time. So I saw the whole thing in maybe 20, 30 minute chunks, just not all at once. 
and I just remember after all the uh, the controversy and the marketing of the movie was, oh, it's this naughty thing. We can't show you anything in the in the trailer and all this stuff. And I just remember being kind of bored by the what was supposed to be the sexy stuff, and then bored by what I saw as just sort of a lame attempt at satire. Which was not something people really seemed to talk about at the time. People just thought of it as this this horrible movie, this failure. But I was like, well, this is clearly – I mean it's Paul Verhoeven. It's clearly going for something sort of satirical, but it just kind of fails at that too. I saw this one in the theater when it came out because there's no way in hell I was going to miss this landmark film that just people were going crazy about. I had seen Basic Instinct in the theater probably – four or five times because I was writing a paper about it in college. At least let's pretend that's why I saw it so many times. And yeah, I was a huge fan of RoboCop. This was pre-Starship Troopers. So I kind of knew about that satire that you're talking about. And of course, Total Recall, big fan of that one too. So I knew about that satire, but I just couldn't really see it that well the first time through. And while putting together this episode, I read uh, you know, the Showgirls It Doesn't Suck book, uh, listened to the audio commentary, just really tried to immerse myself in this thing. But I held off on re-watching the film until last night just to see if I could get that real clear take on it and see that satire for what it was and kind of have that moment when I realized, you know, oh, Starship Troopers is so brilliant. I'm sure that there's something in Showgirls that I missed back in 1995. I just didn't see it this time either. So I don't know. There's moments, there are moments and there are some just hilarious things. And I love how campy it is. But man, this movie just it, it yeah, it's it's weird. It's a strange strange movie. It's got a strange tone to it. Wh- which tone? It's as schizophrenic as Nomi Malone. Yes, it feels like you're watching cuz everyone else acts they do their best. Like everyone's fine in the movie, but then at the center of it you have Elizabeth Berkley and you're just like what is she even going for? It also taught me a whole lot as far as like the hierarchy of Las Vegas. I really didn't know like the whole behind the scenes thing of prostitutes apparently are at the bottom and then stripping above that and then showgirl is like the pinnacle of, you know, high society it seems like in Las Vegas. I'm assuming the movie is a very accurate reflection of the way that all works. Well, it felt very cinema verite. Quite a few <laughs> Some have referred to it as a docudrama, but these people may have been snorting the same batch of cocaine that Joe Esterhouse was undoubtedly snorting when he wrote this script. Everybody's got AIDS and shit, and everybody's got some cocaine going on in this movie. <laughs> and it just really reminded me of like a 1980s film that kind of escaped into the 1990s. I attribute that to Joe Westerhouse. Like He feels very 80s, like probably even now. I don't even know. He, he kind of stopped writing, right, after this movie? He was the flavor for so long, too. And I remember, like, you were talking about the controversy around this film. And I remember when, what was it, Esterhouse sold, like, a two-page treatment for $10 million or some shit like that. It was just, like, insane the amount of money his scripts were getting, even the ones that never got produced. 
Yeah, it's pretty depressing because, I mean, you think about guys like Hordorowski who, you know, had to wait like 20 to 30 years to make a film. Meanwhile, Esther House farts out something on a napkin in the 90s and he gets like all those millions of dollars for just really hackneyed. I mean, the plot of this film is like, it's completely, it's hackneyed. It's like all about Eve meets Girl with Gold Boots, which I know we'll get to later in the show. But um, it's just, it's bizarre. I mean, it's, it's like reading it's like reading somebody's coke jag while they're watching these different old movies and when you look at his his filmography i mean he really scored big with something like Flashdance, which there's a lot of elements of Flashdance in this at least as far as what i see and then things like jagged edge and then a whole bunch of shit that i never saw and really didn't hear about but i remember jagged edge and it just wasn't that great of a thing but i guess that whole idea of like these sexy thrillers were so big in the 80s i mean starting with kind of like fatal attraction that you could just kind of slap together one of these things and become a millionaire well i do think joe esterhouse was the perfect person to write this movie because if anyone listening to this uh googles joe esterhouse look at images of him and he he's very clearly a man that understands women and the way women interact all they do all they do is, is talk about their bodies and food. A lot of talk about dicks in this movie and a lot of talk about doing people's nails. Yes. You guys are getting a, a very privileged peek into the uh, private sisterhood of women. <laughs> so thank you, Joe Esterhouse, for revealing all of our secrets. <laughs> I'm surprised they just didn't strip down to their underwear and have a pillow fight. Well, you know, there is a pillow fight in the sequel, but I don't want to reveal too much until we get... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Am I the only one that hasn't seen the sequel? Uh-oh. Oh, very naughty. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. Have you guys ever been to a Las Vegas review and seen Showgirls, like, in the wild, as it were? I have not, sadly. I, I have yet to uh, visit Las Vegas. Yeah, me either. All my knowledge of Showgirls and Las Vegas comes from the movie Showgirls. Maybe things were different back in 1995, but when I went to Vegas in, say, like, 1999, which I know was so far removed from 1995... At least my experience of a showgirl show at a casino was basically if you do anything, they're going to comp you tickets for the showgirls show. And it's a lot of like bad comedians and women in these like kind of skimpy things. Or you can go to like the uh, one of the more upscale ones. I'm trying to remember what it's called, like the, the crazy horse review at the MGM and stuff. And that's just a lot of women who are kind of dancing almost like rockets kind of thing. And it's really strange too, because like none of them have any breasts to speak of. So like, as they're like dancing and stuff, there's barely any, any jiggle going on. And it's just like, this is really kind of strange here. It, it, it's not nearly the theatrics and the, um, press conference worthy kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't remember turning on the six o'clock news in Las Vegas and seeing any reports about the latest, you know, review over at the, the Stardust or anything. That's that's all I'm trying to say. I know. Well, that's one of the many surreal elements of the movie, because, you know, when they have the whole press conference with Crystal Connors and, you know, it's like, I'm like, that seems a bit weird for a showgirl to get that kind of, you know, you never hear about that out, certainly outside of Vegas. But then on top of that, when she ends up having her injury, uh, 
they're all talking who to replace her. And one guy's like, what about Paula Abdul? And it's like, you really think Paula Abdul's going to like, you know, start shaking her tatas and do this like horrible looking show called Goddess? I mean, in a perfect world, perhaps. But I mean, it's this, this, the universe of showgirls is not latched into any sort of reality. I was really reminded of staying alive when I was watching any of the showgirls <laughs> type stuff. Oh, God. And I, I kept waiting for Travolta to come out there with the headband and stuff and just slide across on his knees, you know, across the stage. But yeah, he never showed up to rescue me. Instead, I just got Crystal Connors played by Gina Gershon and just all of these people in the same wigs and outfits and just doing these really elaborate moves with these crazy kind of, and I know everything is amped up for the movie and everything, but even if you took it down quite a few notches, the pyrotechnics and all this kind of stuff are not necessarily what I remember. <laughs> but then again, I didn't go to the Stardust. I'm just talking purely Flamingo Riviera style. So yeah, maybe the Stardust, maybe that's what put him out of business in 2006. The pageantry, it was just too much pageantry. We're spending way too much money on the show. Well, not only did they go out of business, didn't they blow up the building? Didn't they completely tear down the building? Oh, yeah. They do those uh, those demolitions there quite often. I, I think I remember seeing one for like either the Aladdin or the Sahara, one of those. But, yeah, when the old casinos go out, they go out in a big way. Yeah, I like to think they did it to purify the, the the space after after the taint of showgirls, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but it's a, it's a nice thought. Now, how about stripping? Have you guys been to strip clubs before? Uh, I have only once, but I will say they did actually. Uh, one of the girls did dance to a Prince song, which I always expected that after seeing Showgirls. I just had this assumption when I saw it as as a teenager that if you go to a strip club, somebody is going to take their top off to Prince, and uh, I, it was correct. It was a correct assumption, which I love Prince. So I've been to strip clubs, never any like this. And I think if I were getting a lap dance and the person giving me the lap dance started having a seizure, I would probably call the manager. <laughs> I would be terrified. <laughs> the, th- the things she does to Kyle McLaughlin in this movie are, are horrifying. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine if this was? See, if this film was rooted in reality, but he, in midway he would have been like, "Ma'am, you're starting to chafe me, and it hurts." Yeah. <laughs> you please stop. <laughs> That's the thing I remember most from 1995 was the two kind of Kyle McLaughlin, Nomi Malone uh, scenes, just especially the one in the swimming pool i really was afraid for elizabeth berkeley's life her life or for kyle mclaughlin's life yes yes for both of them really (laughs) her for drowning him for having a broken pelvis (laughs) you know that pool scene i actually when i first saw it as uh you know when i first saw the film it really scared me because i was i was almost like is there is an alien gonna burst out of her chest i mean to be able to like ah. something out of like an 80s sci-fi film where it's like you know the, the alien sexy host is seducing the man and that's the perfect time for you know the creature to burst out and you know uh, latch onto his face now that would have been i'd like to see that in showgirls that'd be a great yeah twist if it just turned into a completely z- different genre like from dust till dawn or something i think there was a similar scene in species now that you think now that you say there is i watched species yesterday actually and yeah there's oh, a, wow. a seduction in a in a pool scene in that as well it's not quite as uh in- incomprehensible and violent but yeah was that as research for the show 
No, it's actually because I, I had watched Under the Skin the day before. And for whatever reason, it reminded me of uh, Species. So I was like, I have not seen Species since it came out. So I rewatched Species. It's not as good as Under the Skin, believe it or not. Well, because Forrest Whitaker wasn't there as the most uh, obvious psychic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> he goes into a room covered with uh, blood and says, something bad happened in here. I sense violence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have been to strip clubs in Las Vegas a few times now, and none of them compare at all to know me strip club, I have to say. It's just not nearly um, – I mean, maybe, again, I'm going on the wrong night or something. I mean, that having that really obnoxious woman who uh, can take her top down oh. by flapping her arms and stuff. Oh, Mama Bazoom. Mama's Bazoom. <laughs> She's channeling Divine or something with that role. Yes. She was more in line with the showgirl type show that I saw at, I think, the Flamingo or one of those, rather than being at a strip club. And at the strip club, you just get the strippers. And you, and you usually get one on stage at a time. So I was very surprised when Nomi and Hope slash Penny were out there at the same time. So that was just kind of weird. And, and stripping is a it's an interesting thing. And I just... It, I feel bad for Nomi by how much she hates herself when she's doing the stripping. Yeah, I mean, I you know, my mind actually never quite went there, but I think it's because I think the potential, if this film had had a different screenwriter than Esther House, and you still kept Verhoeven, who has obviously proven himself very capable of directing seriously great films. I mean, whether we're talking like the stuff he made in Europe, like Soldier of Orange or Spatters, you know, to, you know, to Flesh and Blood and obviously Robocop. I mean, if you coupled him with like a serious screenwriter who's actually really good <laughs> and who doesn't have like, you know, a whole list litany of just like issues with women this would have been a completely different animal because you would have had a character that you probably would have could have empathized with a little bit more and it would have been a much more serious and effective movie because Nomi to me is like she is such a cartoon I, I can't. I just could never see her as like a. I never really felt bad for her. I didn't hate her, but to me, it's just you know, half the time she she's flying off the rails for no fucking reason. You know, she's throwing French fries around when this girl's trying to be nice to her. I I just I did not understand her universe. This guy bails her out of jail, and she's just like you know blowing him off. It I I just I don't. It was just to me. She was like I don't know. She was she was a cartoon character. Uh, That's what's weird about her character is she treats everybody like dirt, yet everybody wants to help her and prop her up like through the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that, that's a, that's actually a perfect way to put it. Cause I was mystified. I'm like, is, how is this girl this charismatic? I mean, she's not Klaus Kinski for crying out loud. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't. Her friend Molly, the first time they meet Molly saves her from getting hit by a car and she's just immediately like, fuck you and runs away. <laughs> and then Molly gives her a place to live. After she's beaten the shit out of Molly's car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After they have a slap fight that causes uh, Nomi to vomit for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? I <laughs> See, and that's on the on the flip side of, Heather, what you were saying about a different screenwriter. I think if you were to take the same script and have a different director do it, it could also be interesting. Because I was thinking of David Lynch a few times throughout this. One, because of Kyle MacLachlan, but also the, like especially that pool scene, the pool sex scene. 
uh, there are elements of that that reminded me of Lynch. Like the soundtrack in that scene is so different than any of the music in the rest of the movie. It's very like ethereal, ambient, creepy music. And uh, so, yeah, that and the, the the violent rape scene that happens late in the movie where it's it's uh, the rock star guy. I can't remember his name, but when he's, you know, abusing Molly and, and his friends are like crowded around and they're all standing over. I was thinking of, you know, fire walk with me or something. So if you if you took the elements from the scripts and gave them to someone like David Lynch, I, I think you would have an interesting movie there, too. Well, that would be so bizarre if after that pool sex scene that she ends up pregnant and has the baby from Eraserhead. <laughs> I would watch that movie. Well, I think I think what we're tapping into is a showgirl's number based around in heaven, everything is fine. And it could be oh dedicated my God. to the late Peter Ivers. I can't believe Peter Ivers, please don't haunt me for invoking your wonderful name in this <laughs> atrocity, a fascinating atrocity of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a break and play an interview with Jessica Flowers, a former professional dancer. What is the preferred terminology? Because I hear sometimes dancing, sometimes stripping. Yeah, I think it depends on how seriously a girl takes the actual performance part of it as opposed to the going in and making money part of it. Me personally, as an artist, I was very much into the on-stage presence. Yeah, I took my clothes off while I was dancing, but I called myself an exotic dancer. You know, I think it varies from person to person. Some girls probably don't mind being called strippers. I mean, I never did. I don't take offense to any of them. I consider myself an exotic dancer. Now, had you been a dancer before this, or was this your foray into dancing? Um, I was dancing um, from the age of 19 to 28, and that was, <laughs> I'm going to give my age away, but yeah, I'm 41 now, so that was a long time ago. But I, I, I enjoyed it, and really... Um, Never thought it would come back up in any facet of my life. Through some changes in life, decided to explore the online camming, and I finally put my roots down solid in the same sort of industry, but on a different aspect of it as an online film matrix. So now 10 years of dancing, I take it that you enjoyed it? Very much so, yeah. I'm sort of a chonky when it comes to music and performing and that sort of thing, so and getting to know people, that was my other favorite thing about it, was that all the different kinds of people that you get to meet, from the girls to the owners to the clients, all in between, everything in between. So I was getting to use my people skills, and I'm a social butterfly, so that was working out fine. I was comfortable with nudity. I didn't think there was anything wrong with being nude. And I got to be creative and you know, sort of design my own persona as well as I went through and evolved as, my, uh, evolved as a dancer in my 10 years, and it started out with shy, squeamish girl and thought she had to wear this or wear that and develop my own personality for Serene. Yeah, now tell me about Serene. How did you come up with the name, and what was that personality that almost, would you call it like a, a character that you were performing? It could be like a character, yeah. The way that I got the name actually was because the first night that I ever danced, I was being taken in by a couple who recruited me, if you will, and I... They asked me what my stage name was going to be, and I had no idea. I just got out of the Air Force. I was 19 years old. I was like, I don't know. And so he just popped up with Serene, and it stuck magically. I just seemed to have a, um, like, when I talked to clients and I told them my name, they said it suited me fine, that I was, it wasn't, you know, bubbles or it wasn't, you know, glittery. And I was a very um, sort of down-to-earth, and, you know, it wasn't the loud, rowdy one who was running around, and I wasn't obnoxious or anything. I was pretty, pretty tame, I guess, that's how it goes. Now, when it comes to the world of exotic dancing, how does necessarily the pay work? Because it seems like 
you know, there's the the tipping, like the couch dances or backroom type dances. How do those things kind of break down for you as being the actual dancer? And I know that this is a few years ago, so you don't have to necessarily tell me prices and that kind of stuff because of inflation. Basically, it changes from um, club to club. And I find, I worked out up and down the eastern, northeastern seaboard. Um, I found that typically from state to state it would change, and sometimes in the states, depending on which county you were in. Um, but it varied everything from how many cocktails you could sell in a night, which would buy the client time with you. You know, how, so say if I sold a $100 drink with a client, then I'd sit with them on the sofa for 20 minutes and you get one left there out of it. The end of the night, that breaks down to the more drinks you get, the more percentage of that you get. There were other clubs where you just worked for tips. I worked at clubs where you have to pay to walk through the door to work. <laughs> so it just depends on, on the clubs. But typically the girls that um, are going to do well are going to do well on stage first. And then <clears throat> they're the real go-getters that just went around doing lap dances all night long. And I sort of like to stick with one client for a while. So I, I tended to get what are called suits. Like the businessmen who would sit down and they didn't want to necessarily go with some of the girls that were a little more aggressive and spend more time with them. They spend all their evening with you. So that was sort of the niche that I found for myself as far as being successful with making money. It wasn't so much jumping from client to client. Can you tell me about the lap dances? Because I know in my own experience, you know, we're, we're talking about showgirls this week, and there's definitely a lap dance that happens in showgirls that, personally, I've never experienced before, but then again, I've never had that kind of Crystal Connors-type money that is thrown around in the film. They vary, too. I mean, what, what specifically are you asking, like? Being in Detroit, things are different as far as what takes place in Detroit versus what takes place in Windsor as far as the amount of clothes that can be taken off. But then there's also usually, you know, you're in the back room. I think some people have this whole idea. I think it was like a Chris Rock bit where there's no sex in the champagne room. I've never seen sex in the champagne room, nor I do, do I think it goes on. But I'm curious as far as like... Do we go as far as Nomi and Zach and showgirls, or is it more of a, like, just kind of a private dance and it's a nice experience type of thing? That, again, varies from girl to girl and client to client, but typically what a VIP room or a bottle of champagne or a split or however um, it's sold, however they define what's being sold, and that typically varies by law, um, which laws mandate that that state's liquor licenses or whatever. Um, typically, they're either full contact or no contact. You know, I've done lap dances in some places where you can only dance around in front of a gentleman. He couldn't actually touch you at all. There were other places where you could touch him, but he couldn't touch you. So you could sit on his lap if you want to and bump and grind, but he couldn't put his hand on you anywhere. And then I've also worked in clubs where the lap dances were completely nude and there was full contact. Um, as far as the sex part of it goes, there's probably a sex in the champagne room, but I oftentimes see it lead to girls leaving the club or the gentleman or something along those lines. So, I mean, that's the thing about, about that it's really difficult to categorize all strip clubs or all strippers or all exotic dancers because each girl has their own agenda and some girls are really comfortable doing certain things that other girls would never do for money and, you know, vice versa. So. As, I mean, as far as the clientele as well, some guys, we never look for that in a strip club, and some guys go there just for that, to try to get a girl to leave with them, so. When you were actually up on stage dancing, 
did you have any sort of like a, a, a shtick or what was kind of the, um, what was your modus operandi when you would get up on stage and, and did you, you were talking about choreographing your own routines and everything. How did that go? I just basically danced to music that I really felt passionate about. And so easy to sort of get into the zone and get into this really sort of sexy, controlling, flirtatious style of moving around on stage, but without necessarily like, you know, humping the floor <laughs> or, you know, I was also pretty, pretty strong and did a lot of pole tricks and um, some of the clubs that I worked in had overhead poles, and so I'd be doing sort of gymnastics or aerobatic type things up there. But um, I always wore boots. That was my shtick. I always had to wear boots. I sort of felt like they could see me butt naked, but they weren't going to get to see my legs. It was sort of like my own little sort of cover-up, you know. But I always just tried to put on a really good performance on stage. And some clubs you work at, you have no control over the music, but what's going to be played for you. So you just kind of have to try to keep your personality alive when that happens not focus so much on the music, maybe even play a different song in your head, kind of. Now, are you talking knee length, uh, thigh high, what kind of boots? Thigh high. And a lot of little black leathery strappy things, and I also always carried a riding crop. So you made that transition to dominatrix fairly easily then after you were done? Fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I started out dancing at 19, and I hadn't turned 20 yet before I was wearing nothing but black leather. Um, I'd say it was pretty a pretty rapid transition for me, um, but it was easy to for me to identify with because I sort of had a sheltered life growing up on a military base and then coming out of the military myself, and I was in the big city, and so it was sort of like this um, super sweet and super kind of innocent, but if you F with me, then I'm just going to smack you across the face and the crop and kick you in the nuts. <laughs> so it, it kind of... Uh, served two purposes for me. You know, one was that I enjoyed being in control, and another was that it was a great defense mechanism. People didn't really mess with me too much. Does every stage that you're dancing on have the pole? No. There are um, what are called satellite stages as well. Um, There's sort of like little platforms, little circular square little platforms that almost look like a big drum or something like that, a coffee table, in clubs where they have a lot of girls working at one time that I've had to do, but I don't have very good equilibrium, so for me, the pole is sort of like a mainstay. If I don't have that pole to hang on to, there's no guarantee that nobody sitting around me is going to get, uh, not going to get fallen, fallen on because <laughs> I need something to hang on to up there when you're wearing six-inch stilettos, but they don't always have poles. Mirrors are pretty much a staple as well. I think the mirrors are almost more important than the pole for some girls, but there's, they're called satellite stages, and there's sort of like smaller off to the side so they could have more girls performing at one time. You talked a little bit about the music. Do you choose your own tracks when you go up there? That depends, too. Some clubs have DJs working in them, and some clubs just have a jukebox. Um, Some clubs have DJs that work at night, and then you use the jukebox during the day. Um, So basically, you have to, you know, be pretty flexible with the music that you like to dance to. It, it it just depends. You can even give a DJ, you know, I want to. This is my. These are my three favorite artists or the three favorite bands I like to dance to or whatever. I mean, for the example, I was in New Jersey one time, and at the time I had uh, braids in my hair, like extension braids down to my waist, and I told him that I wanted to dance to Rage Against the Machine, and uh, I forget what the other two were, but he ended up playing with Millie Vanilli, and I'm not sure I remember by the time they had those fake braids in their hair. Was you know, actually ended up being really kind of humiliating to me. And I didn't, I, he thought nothing of it, but I thought it was really 
you know, embarrassing to be up there doing it. But you just smile through it and just keep doing your thing. And, you know, so you can, you know, there's no, only in a club where you have a jukebox and you get to select your songs as you go, where you have control over the music. And even then, it's limited to what they have in the jukebox. What were some of your favorite memories of being the, a dancer for so long? Helping the girls that would come in that were younger or newer, watching them try to find themselves and, you know, sort of steering them away from any negatives that I knew of. That was one of my favorite things because I know that I got thrown right into it and I hadn't experienced modeling, but and so this is sort of just like modeling, but with your clothes off. But I'm also very uninhibited. You'd see girls come in that were there strictly because, like, they had no other source of income whatsoever or, you know, maybe their boyfriends talked them into it or whatever. So trying to empower them, I think, um, made me feel good, made me feel better. I was always sort of like the dead mom. Um, my other favorite experiences were some of the clients that I met, very interesting and very genuine people, real, real people with real issues in life and real you know, you have a real opportunity to really make make a difference in somebody's either day or in somebody's month or maybe even in somebody's marriage or life, you know. It's not all just glitter and candy cotton flavored body spray. You know, there's there are real people involved too. So me being the kind of person that I am, that was always those were always my favorite things. And the money. Let's not forget the money. The money was amazing. So you actually made some pretty good money when yes, you were working there? I did. Like I said, I traveled um, up and down the East Coast to work certain clubs on certain days of the week. And then, um, so I was always sort of like a guest appearance, or what they call a headliner. So you're like the girl that they can only see this weekend or they're not going to get to see you again until next month or two months from now. And I had a pretty good eye for picking out the clients that looked a little classier, I guess, is the only way I could really describe it. And I carried myself with class, so I ended up doing pretty well. It's like the less you're willing to give, the more they want to offer to try to get it. I asked about your some of your favorite things. What were some of your least favorite things other than dancing the Millie the Millie? <laughs> yeah, because I definitely take the cake. Um, least favorite thing, the walk-by gropers. You know, like you're just trying to walk from point A to point B, and all of a sudden you feel someone's fingers like really where they're not supposed to be. <laughs> you're just like, passing by. Um, so that physical contact wasn't always, um, and honestly, uh, oftentimes physical contact was not a good, fun thing for me. I, I'd never really enjoyed that unless I knew the client pretty well. And, you know, somebody just throws money at you and wants a lap dance straight away in a physical contact club. Well, now you're sitting on a complete stranger's lap and they could be saying anything and smelling any certain way. And, you know, just, you just kind of have to deal with it as it, as it goes. But the other, uh, least favorite thing, especially with me traveling a lot, was being the, the women can be extremely catty. I mean, extremely catty. I worked at a club in New York where on my second night there, somebody urinated inside of my work bag with all their costumes in it. Never figured out who did it, but it was just sort of like a big get out of here to me. So I always thought that was uncool because I was, you know, really willing to. I just wasn't like that. I wasn't competitive like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, number one, least favorite, getting groped. When it comes to being around a lot of men while you are in a state of undress or near undress, is there some sort of familiarity where that men seem to immediately have with you as far as like feeling that they are able to grope you and have that not be a problem? Um, I do think that men in those environments tend to believe, especially 
after several beers that the only reason that you're there is to please them. And so uh, if you are walking around in even thigh-high boots, but you have on a thong and a little top and, you know, you're passing by, they don't, they don't see a problem with reaching out and touching. And I don't know that they would ever do that anywhere else in their lives. But there are so many women in the industry that take that as a cue. Um, a lot of dancers will, if, if somebody reaches out and touches them, well, that's a chance to go ask for a dollar or to try to get them to, you know, buy a drink or whatever. So, you know, I never, I, I only ever had one person thrown out in 10 years, and I think that's pretty good because, you know, you get grabbed a lot, you just got to deal with it. You, you, just, you just sort of take it. Um, because, of course, they're going to, this, they, this might be the only time they've been out of their house away from their families or whatever. In six months, and this is their chance to party it up, and whatever excuse they have to do it, you know, this is sort of like a stomping ground. You have to, you know, you have to understand that that's why they're there. Nine times out of ten, that's why they're there is to be sexually stimulated. And if your half naked body stimulates them, and they feel the need to reach out and touch it, you know, you just kind of gotta understand that that's the environment you put yourself into. You're not working at a library; you're working in a strip club. This always gets to me, and I was very curious if you had ever worked in a club where food was served. Um, I never worked in a club where food was served intentionally. I always thought that was the most disgusting thing, the most disgusting combination. And typically, I've actually never been into a club, even as a client, um, where they sold food. But I kind of got the impression that if they're advertising, you know, naked women and an all-you-can-eat buffet, the women probably are not going to be, maybe not the quality that you'd maybe be looking for in like a gentleman's club. And who really wants to really look at, you know, strange women that you don't know or have never seen before while you're eating food. I don't know. To me, it's just too much. It's always bothered me, too. And the stories that I've heard from guys that do stop into those places have never been good. So, yeah. I never ventured into them myself, but yeah, I think that's really just a really odd combination. Drinks, yes. Food, no. I was talking about the differences between a Detroit or a Michigan and and Canada, and I know you worked in several. It sounds like several states as you're going through, so I'm sure everybody has different laws when it comes to Canada. You can drink alcohol and see almost totally naked women. Like they usually wear a garter belt. When it comes to Michigan, you can see fully nude as long as you're drinking soda pop. You can see topless if you are drinking if you are drinking alcohol. But you can never have fully nude and alcohol at the same time in this state. Is it pretty much the general way in the U.S. that you experience, or is it different from state to state? No, not not to my experience. In my experience, it does vary from state to state, and most of it has to do with whether or not the, uh, I mean, there's, each county will have their own stipulations about, the, you know, owning a liquor license and what can go on in an establishment if you own a liquor license. I've worked in clubs that were BYOB and completely nude, and I've worked in completely nude clubs where, you know, with a full top shelf bar selling, you know, everything from beer to wine coolers to wine to, you know, Helen. So uh, I think it just varies from state to state. I've definitely not um, seen consistency there either. Like in Florida, you couldn't even be topless if they were selling beer. So in this one county that I worked in, so you had to put like 
three layers of liquid latex over your nipples and then powder them and put some glitter on them or whatever to try to make it look not abnormal um, so that they could sell beer because <laughs> nobody was going to come in if they didn't have beer. <laughs> That almost sounds like you were doing a self-airbrush of your own nipples. Yeah, it was like just make them disappear, make them hygienically clogged, I guess. Like there's no way that any, I mean, my understanding was that that wall was there so that there would be no exchange of excretion, which, yeah, I don't even want to imagine <laughs> why they would need to implement that law, but okay. You were never lactating while you danced, were you? Never. <laughs> We are back, and we are talking about showgirls, so I was glad to get a little bit of uh, insight on what it's actually like to be a, uh, a stripper, exotic dancer, whatever you want to call it, because that is just – it's so central to the plot, and yeah, like I was saying, Nomi just feels so – bad about being that though she's not a prostitute and she's very clear about not being a prostitute and by the time we get to the reason why we find out why she's so mad when people start calling her a prostitute or a hooker or a whore or anything about that i've already forgotten it's funny because early on you know when she she keeps being so super reactive to that and the whole great gina gershon line you know you're a whore darling which is which is gershon does own this film i mean to me this film the there are people in this film that kind of, I think, going into it kind of knew what they were, knew exactly what it was. So they just rolled with it. And Gershon, she is the queen in this. But, you know, early on, Robert Davi, the great Robert Davi, which I, I do want to take this moment to say, you know, Robert Davi was amazing in this. He's great in everything. I actually would have rather this film been based around his character than Nomi. <laughs> but uh, as the sleazy club owner, Al, when he says to Penny, like if you want to, if you want to stay here, something like past a week, you have to give me a blowjob. And I almost wondered if part of Nomi's damage too with the whole horror thing is like, you know, did she have to give him a blowjob to get that job? You know, like because Penny asks if he's serious and nobody answers. The movie yeah. never gives us an answer to that. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Davi gets it, and especially his line about must be weird not having anybody come on you. I have I have mixed feelings about that line. On one hand, there's a part of me that thinks that's actually a really great line, but it's horrible. It's kind of like the movie Hated, like the Gigi Allen documentary. There's moments in that where somebody will say something and I start laughing, and then I'm like, what am I laughing at? You know, and I have like this moral quandary. <laughs> but Dobby's delivery, I mean, Robert Dobby should be a bigger name. I mean, he's just, he he's a phenomenal actor. What if Todd Solondz directed this film? Oh, oh, Jesus. That'd be the most miserable movie ever made. In a good way. It would be great, and uh, there'd probably be a lot of suicide hotlines active that night, would be my guess. <laughs> it would somehow be a spiritual sequel to Welcome to the Dollhouse. Nomi would actually be uh, Don Wiener or something. Well, it'd be great if like, every time she gets called a different name, she's actually played by a different actress. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very Ben Wool. Like, it was... 
I love it. Yeah, that's way way too intellectual for Esther House. So that's Alan Ratchens as Tony Moss, the choreographer. I think he gets it too. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. And and his uh, man at arms, uh, Marty, who's played by. Patrick Bristow when he is yelling at Nomi to thrust her her crotch. <laughs> That's enough. Thank you, ladies. Well, that stuff, all that stuff, and like the Robert Davi line about uh, it, it must be weird not having anybody come on you. Like those moments are where it's very clear to me that movie was going for tongue in cheek. Right. But then there's so much of it that because I, I think uh, Verhoeven tends to. I mean, you look at something like RoboCop or Starship Troopers, where I mean, there are people that watch those movies that don't even get that they're sort of sarcastic. Because he rides that line so so tight, and I, so this movie, I think it, it it falters a bit where it feels too like it's trying to be a genuine movie. So there's lots of great lines like that and great little moments like the thrust it, thrust it, but it's just surrounded by kind of confusion of what it's trying to do. Sometimes I think like Kyle McLaughlin should have amped it up a little bit. Kyle McLaughlin plays Gina Grishon, Crystal Connors, her boyfriend, kind of Zach Carey is, is, is his name, but he's kind of her boyfriend. Cause, but yet they both seem to be all about fucking each other over. But uh, so it's not really a, a relationship based on love. I would think this is an alternate universe where love doesn't exist. Every character is just trying to fuck every character over. I know. Kyle McLaughlin to me was kind of like the mystery quotient. Cause I, you know, and, and reading about this film and researching where like he went into it apparently you know, because of, he was excited about working with Verhoeven, which is understandable. I mean, especially when you see like Verhoeven's earlier work with like Rucker Hauer as an actor, I mean, him being intrigued by that's totally understandable but i i don't understand how he didn't because apparently he didn't realize how like weird and off the chain everything was going to be until the film debuted but i mean knowing the scenes that he's in with elizabeth berkeley i'm kind of like how did you not know <laughs> that this was going to be what it was how would you you know he's doing the pool scene and she's flailing about like she's she just did like eight tons of PCP and is having a freak out seizure. And he's like, Oh, this is a serious, good movie. I mean, what was going on in his head? I mean, Kyle McLaughlin seems like a very intelligent man and he's, and he's a great actor. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of Kyle McLaughlin, but I'm, I'm a little mystified that he acted like he was, you know, Oh, I didn't know it was going to be this bad until it came out. But yeah, no, the, the guy playing Tony Moss, he, he was amazing. Um, yeah. All of the like side characters were really got it. Um, even the woman playing mama, Bazoom, even though her character annoyed me, because um, it was basically, to me, she, her act was like Andrew Dice Clay in drag, which is, which is, uh, you know, I mean, one Dice man's enough. We don't need another Dice man, you know, either in the fictional or, or real realm. One's enough, you know? But, uh, but I feel like that actress kind of got, you know, like, a lot of the side people got it. Penny slash Hope, like, she kind of gets it. She plays an airhead so well. Just uh, Amazing. Yeah, I actually felt more sympathy for for Penny in this film than I did for Nomi, to be honest with you. Because I was like, because she was really, you, you know, even though like the five minutes she did it, you're like, oh, this poor girl is going to get took. She seems genuinely naive as opposed to, to Nomi, who's just, you know, needs to be on some meds or something. Yeah, it's like even the first time we meet Nomi, when she's out there hitchhiking and gets picked up by the kind of Elvis impersonator looking guy. And she immediately pulls a knife on this dude for what? He's just like kind of flirting with her and she is just 
out there loaded for bear. And it almost kind of serves her right when she's so dumb that she leaves the guy with her bag rather than taking it. You know, the one time that she's going to trust somebody and then she gets fucked over. And there's so many quotable lines in this movie. And I want to say like right around there is uh, when the guy comes up to her at the, the slot machine and he's like, sooner or later, everybody sells it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's the movie elbowing you in the ribs. Do you get it? Oh, yeah. And there's so many of those things right at the beginning of the movie where it's just like, this is what this movie's going to be. And it's like, okay, not subtle, not subtle at all. Yeah, it stops just short of there's a scene near the end when uh, because Gina Gershon's character uh, gets pushed down the stairs by Nomi. And so Nomi can take her place in the show and her what Molly, Nomi's roommate. Has, uh, is, is upset because she knows what she did. She knows that she, you know, stabbed someone in the back. And it, the movie stopped just short of having Molly say, you've become everything you hate. <laughs> they showed a little restraint by not having her say that. And Molly's mad at her for like five minutes. Yeah, the very next scene, they're okay for no reason. No reason whatsoever. <laughs> Except that Nomi can introduce uh, Molly to this guy that she has been lusting after through the movie. And I have to say, two hours and 11 minutes of this movie, that is just way too long for this thing. Oh, God. Yeah, that was the thing that, that I think surprised me. You know, even even when I first watched it years ago, I was like, man, it, it, films like this are typically 90 minutes because that's, you know, you can put a lot of action because it basically is like a B movie with an A movie budget. The weird thing is I get the impression that Esther House genuinely believed that he was writing something important because, I mean, apparently, because even like when this film was getting ready to come out, he like put out ads saying that he was, you know, worried about women being exploited. And that's why he made this film. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, and this is this is why I keep invoking cocaine, not just because it's in the film, but I've, you know, to quote. Uh, the, there's a great quote about cocaine, cocaine, because you really are a genius, you know, if you, <laughs> and I really think he was just probably doing lines and being like, yes, this is the movie, you know, and uh, so it's really just, which makes it even more surreal, because I think he was probably earnest in his own, in his own way, which is which is endearing and scary. Well, and also the story itself is so, I mean, it's the basic, you know, rags to riches kind of, you know, backstabbing people to, to get to the top story. We've seen this a million times before. So I I don't know why the need to make it some grand two hour epic. Yeah. And we get that. So, early on in that we I mean it's so strange and, and I know we'll talk about this more after this next break but there's just all these like weird things where you see them happen twice and so often you only need to see them happen once like the the one showgirl who throws down those baubles or whatever and trips up the woman who is uh, Crystal Connors understudy her and her partner and, and I feel so bad for this woman because it's got to be sometime during the show maybe towards the beginning of the show I'm thinking and she just lays there in pain for the entire thing yeah they hard cut so the show's over and, and there's no one left in the theater and she's still there still on the stage 
I didn't even think about that. So we see that backstabbing, and then we see Nomi do it like 15, 20 minutes later. And there's so many times where it's like, God, I don't need it twice. I just need this story to move along. You know, like I don't need the whole boat show thing to go on for 20 minutes, you know? And it just feels like there's so many times where it's just like, I want to kick this movie in the ass and be like, get going already. I don't need all of this stuff to show me these just give it to me in shorthand i don't need the the paragraph to explain everything but no the, the great thing about the boat show scene is like because you know you have nomi and one of her co-workers introduced this japanese businessman and it's basically all but spelled out that they're expected to entertain him and phil newkirk who is one of zach's you know co-workers you know and she gets all mad because she realized yes it's a it's another prostitution situation you know, the lines are so thin between, you know, pimping and prostitution throughout the whole film, a point that is hammered home very, very often, every five minutes, really, throughout the whole two-hour <laughs> run. But that Japanese businessman pops back up with the same red-headed co-worker, like, in, this, in the whole party scene where there's no beast debut, uh, which is where Molly ends up getting raped. But you see, like, in the background, you see that same Japanese businessman with the same redhead. And I just love the idea that she got saddled with this dude for, like, what, two months? I mean, like, what is the timeline here? <laughs> it's like, that's a lot of entertainment. I, I, I hope she got, I hope that grand was worth it, you know? Oh, yeah. I hope it's more than just a grand, you know, for the first night and then free the rest of the time. I hope they negotiated a pretty good deal there. All right, let's take another break, and we're going to play an interview with David Schmader, who does a live presentation of Showgirls that is definitely not to be missed. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Hey folks, have you caught up with See Here podcast yet? Here are some of the pearls of wisdom that you can hear on a monthly basis. Here's Tim. How do you get people to take notice anymore aside from shitting on a floor and rolling around in it, eating it and throwing it at people? How about Wendy? I was thinking about this as I was watching. I was thinking about that documentary about Lee Von Helm. Man, drummers are some crotchety ass people. <laughs> what does Sticky have to say? Anyway, there was some guy in there and he was kind of peeking into the window trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. As I was getting closer and closer to him, I realized it was Robert Plant and he said, uh, Oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, Oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later when I open it. <laughs> and I'm rather boring. It sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the ass. You can get the See Here podcast at seehere.podbean.com, that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R, or you can find it on iTunes. We discuss music-related films. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? My name is David Schmader. I'm a writer and performer, and uh, I just wrapped up. I spent almost 
20 years working at an alternative news weekly and just recently left and wrote a book. Excellent. What's your book? It is called Weed, A User's Guide. All the helpful tips and tricks? Yeah, just like, you know, your, your cool uncle telling you what to, you know, clean your bong. <laughs> How to deal with dealers, you know, all of that. Yeah, so I'm in Washington, so we have the hot new world of legal marijuana out here. Tell me about the first time that you ever saw Showgirls. Okay, uh, it was 1999. I had ignored it in 95 because uh, I was voting with my dollars, basically, and I wasn't going to support misogynistic crap. I also I, I came out during the time of... Um, Basic Instinct. So Verhoeven, you know, had a reputation. Um, so I ignored it on this release. And in 1999, my best friend, Mindy, who was like the formative feminist of my life, was like, oh, no, oh, no, you've got to watch Showgirls right now. And she had seen it in a New York screening with the drag queens. So all of this has to go back to like the, the drag queens that brought that kind of started the campy rediscovery of Showgirls in 99. So she told me to watch it. I, I rented, I think, a videotape. It was pre-DVD. And like the first six minutes, I was like, oh, okay, she's right. This is something incredibly special. It was so surprising the whole way through. Like movies that try to surprise you in ways are not as... It just delivers on the, on the minute-to-minute level. So I think... I mean, that was the, the first viewing was like, that was incredible. And I think it might be the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I brought friends over and showed it to them and they agreed. And one of them was on um, the board of the Northwest Film Forum here. And they said, post a screening here. And that's when it was like, oh, other people see the same thing that I see. And something happens to watch it with the crowd. Like it's a very, it's a different experience. And that's how it happened. It's one thing to enjoy the show and kind of spread it around and everything, but you've definitely have helped bring showgirls to a different audience and you've kind of become almost a spokesman for the film. <laughs> a little bit. I feel like the, the, the drag queens did a lot of the heavy lifting and I was like, okay, there are people who love art who would never go see this, even if a drag queen told them to. And it was like the, People who don't listen to drag queens need to be told to see this movie if they if they love fascinating American films and accidental comedy. So that was kind of my drive, and I think, and I yeah, and then getting on being called by. I mean, when I was doing the first screenings, it was like I know I'm going to get a cease and desist letter, and I finally got a call from MGM, and it was it was come record your you know, you're right. Come record your commentary for the DVD. What's that like for you when you get this call from MGM? And it, that must've been such a strange experience. It was very, it was a message. It was just call us back. And I was like, I had a very definite idea of what the call was going to be about. And it was completely based on impending cease and desist. And so I think I was just like gobsmacked that it was not that. Um, and it certainly lended this, ridiculous kind of legitimacy to what had been basically like stoner parties of watching a movie. <laughs> what you do with the film, I've seen it described as being a interactive lecture slash commentary. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. The, how it works is I do it like a six minute introduction and just have some key background information and introduce a few themes and framing things to kind of let people, to put, get people ready. But I really want people to see the movie. So especially I've done it for so long, I know exactly what I'm going to say. I, I don't want anything extraneous. There's this whole level of sass back that I, I want the audience to have for themselves. You know, just the kind of the first time you watch Showgirls, all those things you say. And so pretty much what I add is 
deeper thought on like framing devices and and let the movie land on the audience and they can make their own wisecracks of the kind of just first few level. Um, but I definitely wanted to get it down to as few words as possible because I want the, I want people to feel like they've seen Showgirls. So it's it's not as constant as a lot of other people. And I, I pick really carefully when I introduce something and then get out of the way so that the movie can do its magic. Now, what's kind of your take on the film? You know, you talked about the framing devices and what's kind of like your read of the work. I can tell you this, but I, there's something like, I don't feel like I'm right. And I, I was actually surprised that like other people saw what I saw and that it turned into a thing. So I thought maybe this was just some weird comedy that hit my G-spot and not everyone's. And my take is that it's just packed with life. Funnier, It's funnier than any comedy I've ever seen made on purpose. But definitely, it's a failure. Like I, I definitely think that they were going for something and they didn't get it. And the distance between the ambition and the product is key. Like I could never do this with The Room because The Room, nobody thought The Room would be good. The Room seems like a really interesting piece of folk art. But Showgirls had the Hollywood money. It came off a blockbuster. It had so much glorious hype. And then we got this beautiful, weird thing at the end. I definitely make fun of Paul Verhoeven and especially Joe Esterhaus. I feel like most of the crimes are his. The crimes? <laughs> I'm, I'm overstating, you know. <laughs> There's a coffee table book that Verhoeven released before the movie called Showgirls Portrait of a Film. Yeah, and it just has some of his essays about it, and that played into me feeling that, that was kind of my the first insight I got into what they were thinking because I, I, would, I wanted to know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely make fun of it. And Do you like the movie or do you like the movie ironically? Like, I like a movie like Cool as Ice, but I like it ironically. By now, it's like I've seen this movie more than any movie I've ever seen. It's I know every single frame. I know every sound cue. So I I love this movie. I'm like I feel like we're lucky to have it because people have tried to make movies as funny and explosively as surprising and mind twisty as Showgirls on purpose forever, and it can only be created through failure. Is makes it almost the rarest jewel. And especially, like, the bad movie, there are so many bad movies you can barely watch once. Like, who wants to watch Reefer Madness? No one wants to watch Reefer Madness. But the, a bad movie that delivers all the way through and that you want to watch not just once but forever feels really, like, it delivers negative pleasures as consistently as a masterwork. So does that make it a masterwork? No, and I think that's the eternal debate. I mean, there was a, a book that came out recently, you know, Showgirls, It Doesn't Suck. Uh-huh. Do you think that it sucks, though? I mean, that's the the thing that I want to get to is do you, you know, I asked if you like the movie, but do you think it's a good movie or is it a bad movie? No, it's a bad movie. In my The movie I see is a bad movie, and I'm super fascinated by the people who see something else. It's like we took the same drug and have had completely different experiences. And one is the Showgirls, It Doesn't Suck, and then Film Comment maybe 10 years ago had a Showgirls Roundtable. Um, and it was kind of my first dose of people really applying kind of film, deep film criticism to it. And I read it all and I love that they had their experience, but everything like, I know that the showgirl that doesn't suck goes heavy into the mirror imagery and it's there, but then all that ends up being evidence of 
like, look what was lost because they weren't unable to craft a decent film. <laughs> all this glorious cinematography, all these series were, it, it kind of just makes the, the failure more valuable to me because so much energy and effort went into it. But I'm never sold. And I, I don't think there's a right or wrong on this. It's just like, oh, we had, we, we both had this dream and we took away different morals from it or had completely different experiences because even the when people are pointing out what's what's lyrical about it or what what where Verhoeven was going for it's like so he could go for that but he couldn't get a script or he couldn't find a lead actress like but there's great care shown in some ways and then complete disregard for craft and continuity and sense other places Putting Showgirls kind of into some context when it comes to some of Verhoeven and Esterhaz's other works, I mean, obviously they had worked together before with Basic Instinct, which, again, I think could be considered like a, I don't know if I want to say glorious failure. Obviously, it made a lot of money at the box office, but to me, there's some of that sleaze that then plays into something like a Showgirls. Are you a fan of Verhoeven's other works? I never really took the plunge. I understand I need to see Spetters and see some of his uh, European work and get a sense of that. And I I have just never done it. I've seen Starship Troopers and uh, Basic Instinct. And I I agree with you about Basic Instinct. There there was something about, I saw it after Showgirls, but the dialogue, just the kind of 13-year-old naughty boy dialogue between grown-up detectives about sex. And you're like, well, I cannot really speak to this as like Verhoeven's oeuvre. When you're showing showgirls to an audience, what are the parts that kill? What are the things <laughs> that still to this day are going to get the audience just hooping and hollering? Well, of course, the pool scene, like it tur- it turns into like a like rugby rally. It's insane. I, I, um, that was very exciting to see just an audience go through that with her. We're just like stomping feet with every thrust of her hips and, I didn't expect that. And then um, there, there are like the amazing gems of the um, screenplay. So Robert Dobby soulfully turning around and gazing and must be weird not having anybody come on you. Um, no one can believe that. I just silently rewind it. The silent rewind is my favorite thing because I'm, I'm hidden. They don't see where I am. And there are some things you're like, your brain doesn't believe you just saw that. So I just, Rewind it really quickly and show it again. Oh, the Spago scene. The Spago scene is the great one. The the kind of fake Pinter dialogue about brown rice and vegetables and doggy chow. Uh, it's like Pinter, but there's no subtext <laughs> from outer space. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those are, those are kind of the, the gems. And I skip the rape scene, and that always gets a lot of applause. That's very contentious to the people who are like, you're robbing it of its power. I'm like, fuck you. Are you talking to me about the preserving the integrity of showgirls? I'm going to shoot you out of a cannon. So how does this experience then translate to the DVD? You are on the VIP edition of Showgirls, which I think now might be out of print for a little bit. I don't know if there's been talk about bringing that black back out for the Blu-ray. It's, it's actually on the Blu-ray. They just called it Showgirls Fully Loaded. They just changed the name. And yeah, the VIP was that big box set with the pin the pasties on the squirrels and shot glasses and stuff. And then that became the smaller, fully loaded edition. So yes, you can still get it. And that is, I, I'm happy that people like that, that I got some 
really good reviews for that, like internationally, which was strange because it was by far the goofiest thing I'd done. But it seemed the on the DVD, I just kind of talk all the way through it, and it's not I can't pause, I can't rewind. So I much prefer the live version. I feel like that's what it really is. But apparently, the um, the commentary track does enough that like lots of people like it, and it does the trick. But it was very different because it was just a straight shot. Have you ever gotten a chance to talk to any of the people involved? Do they ever do like, you know, with Rocky Horror, you'll have like Susan Sarandon will show up for a screening, those kind of things. Yeah, the, the um, Rena Riffle and I are very chummy online and we've tried to do stuff together, but she has a very complicated life. But the person who kind of gave me the most feedback was um, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, Seattle International Film Festival. He came to town for... Uh, like a lifetime achievement thing. And I, I interviewed him from, for my job at the stranger newspaper and I wasn't going to bring up showgirls. I didn't want to be the jerk who was like, but he brought it up. And I, so I was thrilled and he kind of was ready to talk and he, he, he shot down any kind of revisionist interpretation that this was meant as camp. And he was like the direction we were, we were doing a, he just told me about what the, how the actors were directed and what they were told, and that it was very much a weighty psychodrama. And he did, he also said, "Yeah, I was I was like I would have never asked you this, but I'm so glad you were up for talking about this." And then he just said that the pool scene, holding on to her, was extremely hard to do with a sexy face, <laughs> like keeping the physics of that scene. Um, <laughs> so I was. So happy with his generosity, and then I feel like I learned a lot from um, Hollywood Animal, Joe Esterhaus's autobiography or memoir, where Gina Gershon just kind of talks a lot about how green Elizabeth Berkeley was. That you know, basically, she spent her whole life on a show with a laugh track where you could like turn to the camera and make a joke, and they all of a sudden she was starring in this major film. <laughs> she that she kind of talked about having to give her some remedial acting lessons mid shoot. <laughs> like between tanks. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the campiest thing I heard about it, and this was from like people in New York theater of, and the kind of gossip that gets thrown around for who knows if it's true, but uh, the scene where I, Nomi has kind of, she's, she's bottomless, but she's wearing glitter in her pubis. So she's kind of wearing mm-hmm. glitter for a bottom. And, they stopped shooting. She went into her, she and Verhoeven went into a trailer and Verhoeven came out with glitter in his beard. So, so this is the kind of acting training they were, you know, direction she was getting according to some lore. Um, but Kyle McLaughlin is my closest, is my best one-on-one. He must be a great interview. He was really sweet and just like ready to go. He was also here to just be completely celebrated. That must be a great situation where it's not promoting something. It's like, you exist and we love you. It was nice. So much of the film, I mean, lives and dies on the performance of Elizabeth Berkley. And so risky to put her in such a huge role for not having that much experience. That's when I get most into the idea that Verhoeven is a secret genius who was spoofing America and giving us exactly the quality this country deserves. It's like, oh my God, is there there's something to like, like casting Nomi, uh, casting Elizabeth Berkeley in the in that movie is like electing Donald Trump president of like, there's this like mirror image of American recklessness in it. But you're right, like so much 
that's all my cues that this is not a serious endeavor come from what she's allowed to do on film, even in the first scene. I mean, that's kind of where all my certainty, whatever certainty I have about like, no, this is, this is a bad movie that is fun is a lot of what her performance was allowed to be by the, by her director. You know, you mentioned the term camp and that, gets thrown around a lot, especially when it comes to this film. But I'm curious, you having your background working at The Strange and everything, you're obviously very well-read and everything, but to you, what is your take when it comes to camp? Because that word seems to have picked up many different meanings for many different people over the years. Yeah, I kind of stay away from it because some people have a really, really specific meaning and then other people have a really loosey-goosey, so bad it's good wash meaning. So I kind of just pay attention to how other people use it. I, or I, I guess I defer to the second one where it's just so bad it's good. And But I guess the, the matter is, the big division is intent. Like, you can't be camp on purpose, apparently. And which I, I guess I agree with. I, I, but yeah, camp seems almost as identity politicized as trans in some ways. So I kind of just stay out of it and defer to what people like. But, um, is there a more specific angle I could answer to about that? Of like, no, I don't think so. I mean, like I said, I think everybody has their own reading. Even if they go back to the Sontag, everybody still comes away yeah, with it yeah. with something else. That's true. It seems like one of the most open to interpretation essays ever. <laughs> I'm going to use it to, you know, defund schools. I don't know. Find some new way to use that argument. Did you say that you were coming out right around the time of um, Basic Instinct? Yes, so there, that was kind of my, um, yeah, so that was act up picketing Basic Instinct for making, yeah, it was, yes, it was Silence of the Lambs on Basic Instinct, and it was the season of gay killers. I think that's what scared me off to girls, too, of just like, don't spend two hours watching this. Once you went back and watched Basic Instinct, what were your feelings about it? By the time I watched it, Ellen had a TV show, and we knew, and she hadn't killed anyone yet. Um, and her ratings were doing fine, even without murder. So I, like the political part was, was a wash for me. I was like, Oh, this is, uh, this has much to do with actual lesbians as like porn with the, where the lesbians treat each other. Like they're made out of glass and they have long fingernails. It seems totally like a guy fantasy of lesbianism, um, which kind of squared with, with showgirls too. But other than that, I was mostly shocked at just the really crass and crude dialogue. It's, and once again, it goes back to Esther House as much as anything, but just the way the um, investigators were talking in the room of the sexy murder at the beginning was just like, oh, this is what 13-year-olds think grown-ups talk like. <laughs> um, I, was, I was pretty dazzled because it could, it, uh, mostly with that one, because that one was a hit. Like, that's the, that's, the, that's the movie that made Showgirls possible. Showgirls flopped, but that was enough, like, that had something... You know, it might have just been that central performance. It's such a good performance from Sharon Stone. And definitely, like, that's what I took away. I was like, oh, that's a movie about a star is born um, as an actor. I wonder if that's just what made the difference as far as public perception with just having an identifiable or even desirable protagonist, even in this kind of camp or crappy, trashy movie. And with Showgirls, we just didn't, we never got a hook. Like, who who did you root for? I guess Molly, but, you know every black person in that movie is totally subservient. <laughs> it's funny that you say A Star is Born because I know Showgirls keeps being compared now to either All About Eve or even Gold Diggers of, what, 33, I think it might be. So it's like, I don't know if we could really take that seriously as far as these 
previous films kind of being turned on their head by Verhoeven. I can see the, you know, the, the what you're talking about with The Star is Born with, uh, you know, not a literal thing. <laughs> right. No, it's just more, more just about like, oh, Sharon Stone got the role of a lifetime and ate it up and was great. And I feel like Gina Gershon is the closest we get to that in Showgirls, someone who kind of is like, I'm in this and I'm going to come out a winner. <laughs> no matter what, I don't care about anyone else in this thing. Um, Going back to Esterhaus, there are times in Showgirls where it almost feels like it almost feels like a uh, a porn film as far as some of the climaxes that happen throughout it. It almost feels like he was writing his penthouse forum screenplay kind of thing. Yeah, during the press tour, they they were really blasé about like, oh, our research was just getting a lot of lap dances, and yeah, they didn't. It all it all just kind of seemed like they were kind of exploiting whatever power and privilege they got because of their surprise hit to just have the time of their lives. And they're kind of creepy, gross men, and the time of their life is not what I would consider fun. But, yeah, they, they seemed – their leering was a big part of it. And I feel that even – I mean, that's in the movie, too. I think that what you're saying with the highly dramatic sex scenes and, like – what man wouldn't want to imagine that when you stick it in a lady, she has a complete full body panic attack. And <laughs> that's how it works, man. You just, you know, I just remember the, the lap dance scene in the pool that you're talking about. Just, it looked like it hurt, man. Yeah. It's just, I would not want to experience that. That's the thing. Uh, that's kind of where I'm happy that showgirls failed because if that had been a big hit, that would that could have warped a generation of boys about like, no, I know what good sex looks like, and it's the showgirls pool scene, and the emergency rooms would have filled up with <laughs> people trying to replicate it. So, where can people find out more about this new book, and where can people kind of catch up with you? Google David Schmader, and I. My book will be out on 420, <laughs> and that's kind of the big thing. You're a whore, darling, and that's all you'll ever be. I'm the queen of Las Vegas. Look at me. Will you just look at me? I'm perfect from head to toe, the star of every show. When the lights go up, it's me they pay to see. This town would die without me. You've got to admit, I'm fucking fantastic, right? God blessed me with perfect hits. And have you seen my ass? It doesn't stop for days. And we're back, and we're talking about Showgirls. Have either one of you had the chance to check out the trivia track that's on the DVD edition of Showgirls? I actually bought the DVD of Showgirls just for the Schmader commentary. Uh, we just heard from David Schmader and from and for that trivia track because I wanted to know what that was all about. Did you guys watch pop-up videos back in the day? Absolutely. Occasionally, I remember it. It was very pop-up videos, but at the same time, it was uh, it didn't have the little sound effects, which I kind of missed. And it was also timed really bad. So, like, I'm a pretty quick reader. Uh, English is my first language, believe it or not. But I could not make it through most of those bubbles <laughs> by the time they disappeared off the 
the, the screen. I'm just like, wait, wait, what, what? You know, if it was more than five or six words, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm, oh, bam, it's gone. So I kept having to rewind and rewatch. So my experience of watching Showgirls last night was more like 2.45 rather than 2.11. So, yeah, it made it a little bit more excruciating. Just uh, trust me on that one. <laughs> I had the trivia track on. I was kind of half paying attention to it. I just had, I only saw the first half of it or so, but some of them were really bizarre. Like there was one in the back room at the strip club where Robert Davi is saying something about like fucking someone or something like that. And the trivia track that came up was like Robert Davi fucks Teresa because that's his wife's name or something really like weird and skeezy like that. That is totally that pop-up video type thing. And especially like they'll give you like weird factoids and then like, like um who was in all of the say by the bell episodes and then they you know kind of give an ellipsis and then Nomi screams and it says screech as the thing so it's like oh okay oh. so yeah when i was talking to, to david schmader he made reference to the book showgirls it doesn't suck so i want to ask you guys and we've talked about this a little bit as far as this whole idea of verhoven being a very, very smart filmmaker and being very subversive, being able to, you know, take a movie like Starship Troopers and makes this wonderful, to me, work of art with it. Robocop, same kind of thing. Showgirls, I was really, like I said at the beginning, I was hoping for like new set of eyes coming into this and being able to see this really kind of subversive thing that I missed before. So I want to ask you guys, do you consider Showgirls to be purely trash a little bit of class or maybe more than just that or or do you see this kind of uh infiltration of ideas that verhoven is kind of famous for i think this movie to me it's like there are elements that actually i will i will say i think are really great about it like on a technical level i think it's beautifully shot and the lighting the cinematography those aspects as far as cinema goes are on point it's it's a beautiful to look at film i mean even the makeup everything is very eye-catching and very vegas everything reflects sort of the the false glitz and glamour of that town um, so that's done really well. And the soundtrack actually is really good. And it's, the soundtrack's really strange, though, because it's like you have artists, like, yeah, Prince pops up, and then you have, like, a couple of My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, you know, songs come up, and Susie and the Banshees, and Sisters of Mercy. It's basically like a mixtape I would have made when this movie came out. The, to me, it's just the real crux of it's the writing. I mean, the writing is really, I, I really wish they would have just had a different, you know, screenwriter than Esther House. I... I mean, and I do think the film's actually entertaining. I'm not, you know, as far as film as entertainment goes, I think it, it does succeed. What I call it classy. Um, only, only classy. It's it's shot well, but no, it's not. Come on, it's not classy. What do you think, Jay? Do you like it more than a ten inch dick? <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> well, I can definitely <laughs> say yes in that regard, but uh, my feelings on the movie are so so all over the place, just like the movie. Uh, I, I feel like for the most part, it's sort of a failed satire. I, I don't think it's so bad. It's hilarious. Like some people do, uh, but I don't think it's really worthy of critical reappraisal. Like some other people do. There's, there's elements that I like, like Heather mentioned the technical aspects. It's a good looking movie. Uh, and some of the, some of the dialogue is so bizarre it feels like it was written by Tommy Wiseau, like the, the, the doggy chow scene where they're talking about huh. how they ate doggy chow when they were kids. And you're like, I, I we're, is, that's one of those things where it's like it's clearly going for something campy, but then other elements aren't like it doesn't seem to go 
enough in either way of of being campy, tongue in cheek, or being some sort of uh, smart uh, satire. It's it's like a it's a biting Hollywood satire without the Hollywood or the satire. It's like you replace you know the glitz and glamour of Hollywood with with Vegas. And we were talking earlier about like parallels in the movie, and the one that actually makes sense in the story is the. It, first of all, it's funny that they're having press conferences and there's all this media coverage for a, a Vegas, you know, topless show. But you have Chris, uh, Crystal Connors, right? Crystal yeah. Connors, uh, you know, and they're giving her all this media attention. And at the end, Nomi's getting that same media attention. So it's like, OK, I get what they're doing, but the movie's two hours. And, and in between the bizarre dialogue, there's just lots of kind of boring, uh, <laughs> boring scenes. I've had dog food. You have? Mm-hmm. Long time ago. Doggy chow. I used to love doggy chow. <laughs> I used to love doggy chow, too. I really picked up, after reading It Doesn't Suck, I picked up on on seeing some of the things, like the doubling of the press conference, the doubling of the the lap dance slash sex scenes, um, <laughs> which we've talked about before. The one thing that I actually um, didn't necessarily pick up from the book, but really more from watching uh, a little video essay about the way that African-American characters are treated in uh, Starship Troopers was just the way that, because we have two African-American characters are very prominent in this movie. We've got Molly and James, James Smith. I'm sure it took Esterhaz forever to come up with a name as complicated as that. But just the way that they're kind of positioned in this movie, and we've talked about how everybody wants to help out Nomi, even though she has no right to being helped. And these two, I think, are the ones that help her out the most and are trying to be the most sincere, especially Molly is the most sincere when it comes to this, because Molly takes her in, well, <laughs> buys her <laughs> buys her food that's not dog food, <laughs> saves her life from uh, from traffic, takes her and introduces her to Crystal and to the whole showgirls world, because Molly kind of works behind the scenes. It's interesting, there's only one other black character that I can think of off the top of my head, and that's the one who... Uh, it, gets you know kind of uh in that unfortunate uh sabotage type accident but molly's there doing all this stuff studying you know getting her degree all this kind of stuff and then she expresses her uh love of this guy andrew carver and who is down with zach like we see like it's, it's weird how this andrew carver thing comes in because we've got her seeing a picture of him on the strip when later we see a picture of Carver with Kyle McLaughlin, and then finally at this, as you said, Jay, the coming out party for Crystal for uh, Nomi Malone, that's when she finally meets him, and that is the most violent and upsetting scene. I mean, not just for this film, but it is one of the most violent and, and unsettling scenes I've seen in a movie in a long damn time. Yeah, and that's part of why I have trouble viewing this as like a so bad it's funny movie, because that scene is, is like you said, it's really brutal. And it's also confusing because this uh, Molly is is very clearly willing to, to give herself over to this guy. So I guess he just has a fetish for beating women. I, I don't I don't understand what that scene's supposed to be. And it also doesn't work like is that scene supposed to tell us that 
anything new that we don't already know. Like, we already know that this town is full of scumbags. Yeah, and it's not him raping her. It's his boys that are raping her, which is just kind of strange, too. His, his two bodyguards and him, they're just like cheering them on and stuff. God, it just it turns my stomach. It's, it's a really this. uncomfortable scene. Oh, yeah. No, it's that is that is a that is one nasty rape scene. And it's and it's weird because, I mean, like you said, Jay, um, tonally, it does not fit in with the rest of the film because the rest of the film is this sort of like glittery, campy, strange kind of film. And so in the middle of this, you have this like, you know, all of a sudden it's like I spit on your grave and it, and it doesn't make sense. It totally does not work with the rest of the film. And um, so brutal. And I mean, she, you know, she's bloody and it's just, it's, it's awful. It is, it is probably one of the nastier ones I've seen, you know, and I mean, as this is somebody who's studied like sixties roughies and, you know, I've seen, I've seen some things, but this was pretty gross. And in the middle of this, like, light, glitzy, campy movie, I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense. Um, Tonally, and also to have the one character that actually probably is the closest thing to a likable human being in this movie get get that kind of punishment seems very weird. And if you're going to rape somebody like that at a party, you might want to, like, lock them in or take them somewhere and dump them off or something. You just don't let them walk around at the party afterwards. Yeah, she just stumbles on out. The one thing I thought was sort of interesting in a disturbing way was apparently that that scene, Esther House, was inspired. He he had read about something very similar happening when he worked at Rolling Stone. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, and in light of the whole Bill Cosby thing and... Uh, you know, it's it's weird. People do turn a blind eye to that. I mean, I remember hearing a, uh, an interview on the Rialto Report with uh, Sharon Kelly, where she was talking about being at a party with Ro- where Roman Polanski was in attendance. And, you know, he had like a young girl with him and she was passed out and he disappeared with her and nobody really did or said anything. Oh, uh, man. But again, if it was handled by a smarter script writer, that could be kind of the moment of like, this is the big ugly. You know, like if, if you had a, a writer who was better than Esther House, who could do something that actually truly is dark and biting, well, then it could work. It could have worked, but um, not Esther House. I mean, the man's best known for flash dance. Come on. You know, like this is not going to be a cat that's going to be able to pull off, you know, the end of the line kind of vibe and tonality that this film that I think Verhoeven may have wanted or maybe he didn't I don't know it's such a weird beast this film <laughs> Mike you said you listened to the uh, the commentary track for this right and that's the guy that is a big proponent of the movie being funny right right during that sequence does he just go dead silent from what I understand they actually skip that when they show it oh so okay. I think that's there you go. Probably the best thing that you can possibly do. That's, that's the closest we'll get to a fan edit of Showgirls. Yeah, yeah. You just hit the fast forward button <laughs> and off you go. Because, yeah, that is just, that's the moment, man, where you're just like, oh, it's so painful. And, yeah, it just totally turns the movie such a different way. And And it's in moments like that where I'm just like, oh, yeah, Verhoeven did The Invisible Man or The Hollow Man, too. Oh, I yeah. forgot all about that that was pretty fucking dark and (laughs) not very good either yeah well you have have jennifer jason lee and flesh and blood who gets raped as well so verhoeven was definitely not afraid to delve into some very dark 
territories, but you know, but in flesh and blood, it makes sense. Showgirls, not so much, you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, and especially yeah. with this movie, if they're going for camp or if they're going for something satirical, you know, that just completely stops the movie dead in its tracks. Yeah, at least with James, like James is the other African American character who is really trying to help Nomi out for no good reason whatsoever. Like. Maybe he wants to have sex with her, but he really doesn't get into it that much. And well, he like, definitely God. wants to have sex with her. Oh, and the <laughs> abuse that this woman pours onto him. I mean, he loses two jobs over her. <laughs> he loses however much money bailing her out of, of jail. He gets uh, need severely in the groin buyer. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's terrible <laughs> what this guy goes through. And he ends up with uh, Penny, who then ends up pregnant. And basically, it feels like, okay, that's the end of his days being a, choreography, a choreographer. And he's just going to go on to whatever kind of menial job he can possibly get. So I feel kind of bad for James. At least he doesn't get gang raped. That's, that's the, the best I can say about James. He just kind of leaves the movie at that point. Poochie Pucci yeah. went back to his home planet. Like that entire subplot really doesn't have much to do with anything. And it doesn't inform the Nomi character at all. She has no like arc or growth or any sort of uh, revelations based on what James goes through. I can't even understand his most famous line when he just says, man, everybody got AIDS and shit. It's like, what the fuck is he talking about? Because he's talking about the the lap dance that he saw Nomi give to Zach with Crystal there. But I don't understand why he has to bring up everybody having AIDS and shit when they're having probably the safest sex you can possibly have <laughs> other than Zach uh, getting bruises and possibly <laughs> some fractures going on. Yes, you cannot get AIDS through dry humping. Let that be no. known. <laughs> well, this film, I mean, but again, it's like this the, the logic in this film just makes no sense. I mean, we're, we're talking a universe where two women who hate each other are bonding over eating dog food. <laughs> I mean, this is the, this is what women talk about: dog food and nails and titties and and oh, and here's another thing: how come there's multiple scenes where like you have women eating like a good amount of carbs and then immediately goes into dancing? Like, I, I yes. mean, anybody who's like tried to work out after eating a full meal knows that's a bad idea. And dancers, I mean, come on, dancers aren't eating hamburgers and French fries. I mean, they're they're living off of cocaine and Tic Tacs. I mean, that's that's not totally true. <laughs> that's not totally true. But I mean, it's I don't know. This universe, the Showgirls universe, is it might as well be a science fiction film as far as how it how close it is to any sort of reality on this planet. <laughs> Brown rice and vegetables. That's what they keep saying everybody eats, even though everybody just eats cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers and, and spagos and, and puppy chow. <laughs> mm, I love puppy chow. It's so good, darling. Darling. <laughs> Go put put on your Versace, your Versace get, your nail, get your nails done, eat some dog food, and you too can recreate the glamour of showgirls. And, uh, and hopefully get, it, get to have a boss as beautifully sleazy as Robert Dobby. So. <laughs> I guess that's the thing about the Zach character that I just... He's so strange to me because half the time he's really 
genuinely nice, like telling Nomi how to properly pronounce Versace, uh, kind of, you know, joking around about his MBA, this kind of stuff, uh, be, calling on his huge cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, the rest of the time he's doing all these underhanded things. So he could be probably the most complicated character of the film, but he is just such an enigma at the end of the day. I get nothing from him. What you call complicated, I call bad writing. Okay, I, I accept that. It's complicatedly bad writing, I think is what, yes. that, <laughs> what we're dealing with. He's whatever is needed for any individual scene. And it shouldn't be that complicated. I mean, we've seen this story before. We've seen the story of the ingenue who comes in and wants that big role in the thing, and there's someone in her way, whether she takes that person out through subterfuge or whether it's just luck of the draw or something happens. I mean, this is like classic Hollywood. We're going all the, all the way back to, you know, 42nd street with Ruby Keeler, who ends up being in that prominent role. And, and it's not that complicated of a story, but, but showgirls is showgirls just goes so many places. It doesn't necessarily need to go. I mean, just with the, the James Smith character, he doesn't add anything to the proceedings. No, well, I think part of it is, is sort of the the weird is as again it's Esther House. It's the weird influences because he I know he's gone on record saying that All About Eve was an influence, which mm-hmm. I can definitely see, uh, kind of on some superficial levels. Um, one film that, that makes me think that I feel like he watched and won't cop to possibly is Ted V. Michael's Girl in Gold Boots, uh, which Hollywood has always had a big tradition of kind of watching like B movies and kind of re furbishing them uh, and never claiming them. Like Again, another Michaels film, The Doll Squad, basically is like Charlie's Angels. But it came out before Charlie's Angels. So, uh, Girl in Gold Boots has a similar plot. We have a girl who has a troubled, you know, family history who wants to just go off and dance. And she ends up, you know, hitching a ride and going to Hollywood and, you know, ends up becoming like a background dancer and then gets sucked into the world of drugs and seediness and slimy men. And then or, and ultimately finds like gets out of the scene because it's just, she realized what a mess it was. Um, the difference is you don't, the character in Girl in Gold Boots uh, is actually, I mean, it's, it, you know, the actress is beautiful. She's not very, she's not the best actress in the world, but her character at least has like moral compunction, you know, like she won't steal. And she ultimately isn't Machiavellian, uh, unlike Nomi or like, a, you know, all about Eve, but there is like a similarity, but actually girl in gold boots is a little more entertaining because it's, it's shorter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have, and you have lots of go-go dancing in gold bikinis. I mean, what's not to love with that? Well, where do go-go dancers fit on that continuum that I outlined before? Is they, are they above showgirls? Are they below showgirls? Are they below prostitutes? I mean, I gotta somebody's got to point me in the right direction because I really didn't know until I watched Showgirls that there was this huge strata between <laughs> all of these positions that a woman can hold. Uh, all the details are fleshed out in the Showgirls appendices. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Silmarillion of showgirls. Yes. <laughs> I, might, I think go-go dancers are above strippers because most of the time they keep their clothes on. They might not be wearing a lot of them, but um, they're below showgirls because there's not as much pageantry and fanciness. Okay. That, that's right. just my personal approximation. So. 
Well, I think it's time that we heard another opinion here. So we're going to take another break and play an interview with Adam Naiman, the author of It Doesn't Suck, an Appreciation of Showgirls. My name is Adam Naiman. I'm a film critic based in Toronto. I'm a contributing editor to a Canadian film magazine called Cinemascope, and uh, I write for a number of other publications in Canada and the States, and I'm an instructor at uh, the University of Toronto in the, uh, not not a member of the faculty, but I, I teach in the cinema studies department. When was the first time you saw Showgirls? Uh, the first time I saw Showgirls was when I was 14, when it came out in 1995. Uh, I was not uh, legally permitted to see it, but nothing is going to get between an enterprising teenager and, you know, his R-rated movie. So uh, I saw it here in Toronto when it opened and then probably saw it again pretty quickly after it came out on home video the next year. What was your initial impression? I think a lot of 14-year-old boys were hoping to sneak into Showgirls, but I might have been one of the only ones who was doing it because it had gotten zero stars in the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national paper. I mean, I've always, even since I was just a teenager, been really interested in film criticism and in reception, and even in a kind of, not pre-internet exactly, but certainly, like, internet was a more limited thing there. There's no such thing as social media and even then, you could hear whether it was on like talk shows or reading it in the newspaper or what even like kids were talking about at school was that this film was just a disaster, right? I mean, I was interested in seeing why people hated it so much. And of course, you know, like I suspected that probably the reason people thought that this was bad was also because it seemed like a pretty extreme movie, you know? Like I wasn't, it's not like I didn't know what it was or what it was about when I went to see it. But I was going to see it because it had gotten such bad reviews. When did you come up with the idea of writing a book about showgirls? At the University of Toronto, when I did my master's, I did a project. My, my thesis was on Verhoeven, but it was actually on his Dutch films. And that wasn't because I was unfamiliar with the American ones. It was just that I thought that, you know, accounting for this guy's sensibility and style as a director and using the Dutch films as the the prism to look at him through, you know, seemed like a, a more original topic. But my advisor there always sort of would make notes on my paper during our meetings and say, you know, you obviously uh, keep trying to bring the American movies into the study of the Dutch movies. And you know, I, I I had sort of found that there were a couple of his Dutch films, one he made in the 70s called Kadi Tipple, and one he made far more recently, uh, a film called Black Book in 2006, that the heroines of those films and the stories of those films were very uh, reflective of showgirls. And so, um, you know, that, plus the fact that I have just always liked showgirls and been a fan of it, meant that, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, it might be a kind of a, a fun challenge or or an attention not attention getting but like a, a conspicuous thing to do a notable thing to do to try and defend that movie and then ECW Press a Canadian publisher decided that they were going to start this series of pop culture monographs and I think probably within 45 minutes of someone sending me that Twitter link or that Facebook link about the, the series I had sort of crafted a pitch and as I was crafting the pitch, sort of realizing how credible it seemed, like 
this is a great idea for a book. This is a movie that everyone's heard of, a movie that everyone knows, and a movie that a lot of those people would probably be interested in in, in reading or, or finding out how someone might frame it positively. And what was ECW's response? They loved it. My two editors there, uh, Chrissy Calhoun and Jennifer Noach, uh, they met with me. I was the first author in the series. They've subsequently published uh, four, I think, three more titles, four more titles, you know, which have done well. They were obviously looking for something off the top that was sort of notable. And I, and I really commended them at the time because uh, it's a Toronto-based publisher and I'm a Toronto-based writer, but Showgirls is obviously not a Canadian film in any way. And so, you know, often in Canada, there's pressure, you know, uh, in the arts or, 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 or in publishing to, to, to talk about Canadian culture, to talk about Canadian film, and people should do that. But in this case, they, they, they were very receptive, even as a Canadian publisher, to the idea of this kind of American movie. Um, and I think it's because they knew, they knew what a good fit it was that the combination of like a conspicuously famous or infamous movie and a book length of about 100, 120 pages, which is like long enough to do a detailed argument, but you're not writing a, you know, a 400-page novel about it. They, I, th- I think they recognized that, that this was a good idea, and you know, I think that they were right. I think it worked out really well as a first book for their series, and I, uh, yeah, I, I hope it worked out well as a, as a, as a book. So you're very familiar with Verhoeven's work. You're talking about his Dutch films primarily in your thesis, and and you come to Showgirls with this history and everything. How was it when you tried to tackle this film that had been ridiculed for so many years? It wasn't that I was looking for an angle of approach. There were so many different angles of approach that I had a hard time narrowing down which one to take. I mean... There's the whole question of the film's reception and, you know, why do some films get really bad reviews? I mean, obviously the answer is sometimes because they deserve them or people think that they deserve them, but there was a whole sense, I think, in the mid-90s that, um, you know, critics were really fed up with with the extremity, the sexual extremity and the films Verhoeven had made and the films written by Joe Esterhaus. So I think to some extent, like their luck kind of ran out. And that was one of the things that I wanted the book to be about, you know, the idea of why this film, which is just as outrageous and satirical and entertaining as something like Basic Instinct, which was a huge hit. Like, so why Basic Instinct was a hit and Showgirls was a flop. Um, you know, the question of Verhoeven as an auteur and sort of locating certain themes, uh, certain traits in his characters and in his storytelling, uh, you know, starting in the 70s was definitely part of it. I thought just writing in general about the depiction of sex in American film. I thought writing about musicals because Showgirls is kind of, not kind of, I mean, it's very closely patterned after old musicals, backstage musicals, films like Gold Diggers of 1933 and 42nd Street. And, you know, Verhoeven even said that at the time, not that anyone paid attention, but that those films and a movie like All About Eve by Joseph Mankiewicz were sort of some of the movies that he was inspired by. Um, And, you know, and then there was the whole angle of performance with Elizabeth Berkley and the question of, you know, can a great movie have a bad performance in it or is it only a great movie because it's a bad performance? Is it even a bad performance? And so I knew that there was going to be a ton of stuff to write about. And if anything, I was just 
searching around for the right framework or the right question to ask first that would then permit me to ask all those other questions. So what was that central question? What came to you to help you unlock this mystery? Well, this is where I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this part because it's a really nice experience, which is there's a French director named Mia Hansen Love. I would hesitate to, just because it's such a it's such a, a general term. But I mean, I would say she's an art filmmaker, or she she makes films that in North America would would be considered art house fair. She made a film this past year called Eden. And when I met Mia, it was three or four years ago when they were doing a retrospective of her films in Toronto, and we had dinner. And uh, she ran my age. She, you know, I mean, she's a she's really acclaimed French filmmaker, one of the sort of the, the most uh, the most well-regarded younger French French directors today. And you know, we found that we had a lot of movies in common. I found that she was a big fan of Showgirls. I had just sort of found out I was going to write this book, and she told me that there was going to be a new uh, a scene in her new movie Eden where characters talked about Showgirls. It's a film about the birth of electronic dance music in France actually about uh, based on her brother's life and her brother was friends with the guys in Daft Punk anyway the movie dramatizes all that but there was a scene in her script where characters watch Showgirls because it's the 90s when it's set and you know they watch it on home video and she was very kind she sent me those pages she sent me that script even though she hadn't even started shooting the movie yet and the discussion that the characters in her script had about whether it was good whether it was bad whether they enjoyed watching it. They were so funny and so articulate on the page that if you read the book, um, that screenplay excerpt really is like the basis of the inquiry of the whole book. And I, you know, I thank Mia and I cite the script. And so coming out the other side, uh, last fall, after the book had already come out, I went to finally see Eden at the Toronto International Film Festival. And I saw it at a press screening. And the scene was in the movie, and it was exactly the same as it had been in my book. And it was so surreal to see this sequence, which had been part of this argument I was making critically, suddenly now be uh, acted on screen by by actors. And I was happened to be sitting with a lot of friends, other writers who read my book or knew that you know Mia's scene was in there. It was one probably one of the most surreal film-going experiences of my life, just those five minutes of Eden. It was like I was watching the film version of my book. It was really um, strange. But yeah, Mia's uh, generosity in sending me that script and her decision to just have characters debate showgirls and debate it on the grounds of taste and auteurism and artistic intention uh, really gave me sort of uh, really gave me an in. So it, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I would have written a book regardless, but I really don't think it would have been this book without that interaction. So what were some of the things that you discovered as you were kind of unwrapping showgirls? Well, what I discovered or what I rediscovered, and I think what a lot of people who've now watched the film uh, in accordance with my book, like at the screenings we did in Toronto and New York to promote the book, what they've discovered or rediscovered is that Sugar is an extremely well-made film. I'm now not talking about uh, its plot or its themes or its acting or its dramaturgy or anything like that, but that, you know, Verhoeven is a really, you know, he, and he had a lot of resources at the time, too. You know, he's just a really good visual storyteller. His cutting's really great. I mean, it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel long. And I sort of felt that, you know, when you're going through the movie sort of scene by scene, almost minute by minute, taking notes and then determining, you know, what you're going to focus on, 
I just found that there were so many things I wanted to talk about formally or so many things I wanted to talk about in terms of camera work. And that, that was very funny to me because here I am writing a book about a film that working film critics at the time had said was totally inept on every level. And I guess what I discovered was, was how disingenuous I think a lot of that writing was where it's fine if people at the time didn't like Elizabeth Berkeley's acting or they thought the movie was exploitative or they thought the dialogue was dumb. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for all of those points. It was that Berkeley, maybe her performance is bad. Maybe the film's dialogue is dumb. It is a sleazy movie. But when you read these reviews and critics are also saying, oh, and it's so badly shot and it drags on and it's, you know, terrible movie making. When you're looking at the movie, you're like, well, it's just not true. I mean, I work as a film critic. Taste is subjective. You can't tell someone they're wrong about how they feel about a movie, but I guess when it comes to form and when it comes to craft, I think there is such a thing as having a more educated or a more objective uh, view of that stuff. And I, I sort of, you know, it was really encouraging to me going through the movie again, now not watching it as an entertainment or as a story, but breaking it down into to its component parts and just seeing how purposeful, how intentional, how sort of rigorous the filmmaking was in it made me feel like I had a solid foundation to then maybe try and reclaim or, or rehabilitate some of the, the stuff on top of that. How was the book received when it came out? It was mostly pretty well-reviewed. I mean, I think what a lot of people did was they took this as an opportunity to write what they've always thought about showgirls, which is fine. I mean, ideally, that's what a good book or a good essay does, or a good book review or a good essay that a book does, is it uses the book as an opportunity to talk about some larger stuff. I mean, you don't want to review the book where you're like, you know, I like this sentence, I don't like this sentence. I mean, I was the the, the, the reviews that I liked were the ones... And I got reviewed in The Atlantic, and they sort of used it to talk about sort of sex work or, um, you know, if it's possible that Showgirls is satirical, but it also maybe reinforces negative attitudes about sex workers because you find out Nomi's characters are prostitutes. So that was interesting. I got a really uh, kind review in Slate. I couldn't believe that it got mentioned, not full reviews, but like the book got mentioned in the New York Times, it got mentioned in the Paris Review, it got mentioned in in Vanity Fair in a piece by James Wolcott. And I think, you know, while I'd like to think that has to do with the fact that, that I wrote a good book, I mean, it's because the movie is so conspicuous, the movie is so infamous, that I think anytime a writer or an editor hears, oh, and someone's written a whole book about it, they sort of want to mention that, right? And I, I did lectures about the film here in, in Toronto. I did an intro for it at Lightbox, uh, the, the, the Tiff Bell Lightbox, as part of their Verhoeven retrospective, to sold-out screening. And I guess, I mean, I, I, I say this because I, I, I think it's a good thing. I think if there were like 400 people there, I don't think even half of them really knew that they were there because there was a book, right? <laughs> like they were just going to see Showgirls because it's fun to go see Showgirls. And actually, I remember when I was doing my opening remarks with the director, the, the artistic director of the Lightbox, or the, the head programmer of the Lightbox, you know, I had a lot of friends there, and there obviously people came out because of the book. I was selling books there. But I saw this one guy in the front row while I was talking, just going, I saw him talking to his friend, and I could hear what he said. He was saying to his friend, blah, 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 start the movie, you know? I, I guess my point is that the book was well-received, but the but people in 2015 don't need a book or don't need the... Uh, the the discourse around a book to want to go see a revival showing of Showgirls. I mean, this has been a big, successful, popular cult movie 
in the sort of repertory circle or the midnight movie circle for 20 years now. And so while I tried to write about that in the book, it's also just nice to discover uh, now that I'm, I'm touring this book or talking about this book, you know, uh, people will just go see Showgirls anyway. And uh, they, they, they don't need a book to tell them that they're supposed to like it. Do you think that they're seeing it more in like the room type instance or more like a, uh, a genuine good film that is a midnight movie circuit film? Oh, it's, I mean, it's a great question. And I think the, I, I don't mean for this to be a cop-out answer. I think that the, the answer is that, you know, some do, some don't. I think that when Showgirls was first remounted or recirculated, it was a sort of thing like The Room long before The Room even existed. The screenings that the film would have in New York or in Los Angeles or San Francisco at the beginning were very sort of culty, ironic, sort of laugh-at-the-movie kind of screenings, but at a certain point when the community or a set of rituals develops around a film, um, you know, people aren't really going there to watch it because they hate it. They're going there to watch it because they like it, and who's to say that that there's the right way to like a movie. I think that there's a lot of affection for showgirls in those screenings, even if it's laced with a bit of contempt or maybe a bit of disbelief. But I think more and more now, you'll see the film written about or screened or programmed more in line with the idea that it's an auteur film or more in line with the idea that it's a misunderstood film. I mean, one of the things I would say about my book is that if, if, if I'd written this book 10 years ago, then, hey, maybe it would have showed that I really had a lot of guts or that I was really on to something unique. You know, oh, my God, a guy writing a book about showgirls in 2005 or, or, or something. But by 2015, if anything, my argument is not that hard to make. I think you would be hard pressed in cinephile circles or in film culture circles to really find anyone who believes it's as bad as people said it was. And I think a lot of people, or at least the sort of people I know, the people who I read, the people who I interact with, already like Showgirls and think that it was misunderstood, think that it's a good film. Um, you know, I talk in the book about how there was this interview with Jacques Rivette at the end of the 90s, the great French director, you know, one of the most challenging, rigorous filmmakers, a contemporary of, 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 of Godard, a, um, you know, a sort of a, a star of the original French New Wave. You know, he thought Showgirls was a great film. He, he said it was one of his favorite American movies, you know, of, of, of that era. So, you know, I'm not first. But have you had people come up to you and say that your book really helped them reevaluate the film? I, I have, and it's been really nice. You know, it's really nice when you hear that. I've also had people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I spent the 13 bucks and I spent the five hours or four hours reading it, and I don't believe you at all. And I've had people come up to me and say that they watched the movie again and really enjoyed it because they read the book. And I mean, it's a weird position to be in because it's not like I'm the filmmaker, so I don't really gain anything from them watching the the movie again. I'm just happy that they gained something from watching the movie again after reading my book or watching it to sort of prepare for reading my book. But I mean, I work as a film critic, so I'm very used to people, um, you know, interacting with you in comment sections or or emailing you, or even just at the theater with you, you know, people want to engage, and, you know, if they if they agree, then they want to sort of talk about why they agree, and if they disagree, they, they want to tell you you're an idiot, or, 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 or tell you where you went wrong. And so I think that in the case of this, with, you know, having a book, I, I've gotten an awful lot of emails from people who I don't know, 
who found my address somewhere or found or messaged me on on Facebook, and they kind of want to like talk or argue or or, or or fight about showgirls. I guess that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean that I've emailed them all back or engaged every one of them because life's too short to fight with everyone you meet on the internet. It's got to be some sort of testament to the power of the film, though, if people are still wanting to argue about this so many years after the movie's release. Well, exactly, and and that's what I... I, I mean, I'm glad you said that, and, and I think that that's true, which is the film is so obviously not negligible. Even if I'm not always sure, even in the process of writing the book, even in the process of talking with you about it right now, I'm not always sure exactly what the film is, right? I mean, it is a, in addition to being all the things you would expect from Verhoeven, which is that it's outrageous and it's over the top and it's satirical and it's cynical and it's explicit. I mean, that's sort of, you know, the tourist, uh, the tourist reading in the movie is not hard to make. Um, you know, it is sometimes hard for me to determine what the film is. If it's this really powerful movie because of how, because of the era that it's set in, uh, you know, if, is it powerful because it's dated? Is it powerful because it's a movie about a woman who will do anything to become famous, including humiliate herself? And that's also kind of what happened with Elizabeth Berkley in the role and, you know, what happened to her in her career. Like, does it have power because it's such a disaster? Like, does it have this aura of catastrophe around it that, 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 that makes it more than it is? I mean, one of the one of the most interesting things someone said to me after a screening in Toronto, someone I didn't know, they came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, watching it on the big screen, the movie felt big, like the movie felt like a big deal. And I guess it's, I don't know if they felt like the movie was a big deal because a big deal was being made about it and they're screening, you know, with the author of a book on it, or if they sort of felt like the movie was so big and so powerful and so over the top that it sort of justified this discussion or... or or, or, or justified this book. But as you can imagine, this is something that I sort of think about a fair amount of the time. Uh, because once you've written this book, you're constantly reading what people say about your book, or you're constantly giving interviews, you're talking with the book, and hoping that, you know, you're hoping that you're justified in what you've done. So what are you working on now? So one of the things I'm working on now is I'm, I'm writing a book about a, a British uh, director named Ben Wheatley who made a really interesting film a couple of years ago called Kill List. I don't know if you've seen it. New one coming out called High Rise, which obviously I will talk about in the book, and that's for an American publisher. And uh, there's another longer book project that I was supposed to be doing uh, about the Coen brothers, which has sort of been a little sidelined and a little uh, waylaid, which is unfortunate. I was making really good progress on it, and um, due to circumstances beyond my control, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that manuscript. Um, and then in general, I mean, I'm just uh, working, seeing films and seeing films and writing about them and teaching about them. In addition to U of T, I do lecture series on different directors here in Toronto, so I'm trying to just decide who to do my next one on. I've done recently Kubrick and the Coens and Lynch, and I'm sort of trying to maybe not do a white male American director next, but it also has to be someone who commands enough of an audience that people are going to sort of show up for a two-hour lecture with clips about their work. So um, I sort of have to decide who that's going to be. 
got so much talent, it just ain't right for you to keep stripping at the cheetah night after night. Man, everyone got AIDS and shit, and you soon will too, if you keep fucking them without fucking them, like you always do. I'm gonna take you to dance school I'm gonna teach you a thing or two Things can be confusing When it comes to dancing They're shimmying, shaking, thrusting, grinding But there's always clothing Put your hand down on me I'm gonna take you to dance school I'm gonna show you how to move You're rough around the edges But you'll improve When it comes to dancing There's just one rule Everybody knows that dancing ain't fucking Put your hands out Grab your tits Hands up, tits, hands up, tits, now grind your ass on my dick, ass, dick, ass, dick, that's it girl, you're getting it, everybody knows that dancer ain't fucking... Alright, we are back and we are talking about Showgirls, now Jay, I know you said you didn't have a chance to watch Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, and that's Penny apostrophe S, just so you know, so at the end of the day, Penny is from Heaven... So, but how about you, Heather? Did you uh, get to enjoy, um, let's say, Pennies from Heaven? Boy, howdy. Um, let's talk about this movie. Holy hell. Um, it's, if, you, if anybody thinks Showgirls 1 is terrible, why, if they, when they finish Pennies from Heaven, they're going to be thinking that they just watch Cassifetti's faces. Huh. Uh, it's, uh, I... I'm really mixed on this. First of all, it is, you want to talk about being too long. This one is over two hours long and it has, I mean, I used to work at a public access station and I mean, we, I mean, I've worked on programming that looked like we had about the same budget as this film. I mean, there's like a TV show called star dancer. I guess we should start from the beginning. Penny from the original show girls. It's the same actress. It's Rena Riffle who wrote and directed this. She wrote and directed Pennies from Heaven. She's with she's still with Jimmy, who she uh, which is uh, Glenn Plummer, same actor from the original Showgirls, and they're still married. And there's a reference to the kid, but he's telling her that she's never going to be a dancer. She's just a stripper, and she will never be a real dancer until she takes ballet. And I mean, she's like in her 30s. I mean, she looks actually Rita Riffle in this film looks almost the same as she does in Showgirls. And this film came out just a few years ago, so whatever she's doing. You know, she looks great, but but it's kind of like ballet is something you you take when you're like four. If you want to be a professional ballerina, you know, you don't take it in your thirties and expect to be a you know professional at it. But um, and she decides, you know, and she's obsessed with a show called Star Dancer, and she wants to be on Star Dancer. So she basically leaves him and goes on this journey where she ends up with a cult. Like there's a like, and there's talk. There's like references to Madame Blavatsky and the Illuminati, and, and this film. I mean, this film really makes no sense, and it's it's I don't know, but it has four of the uh, four of the original actors from Showgirls, which I found fascinating because you have her and Glenn Plummer, but you have Dewey Weber, who was the Elvis guy, in the beginning and end of Showgirls, who's his character's name's Jeff, and then you have uh, Greg Travis, who was the Phil Newkirk character. To let folks know, there's a, a shorter cut of this movie um, that I have yet to watch. It's 100 minutes as opposed to 145 minutes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not the cut. Uh, we got to watch, no. is it, Mike? <laughs> no. 
and it's funny that you um i think jay brought up david lynch at the beginning of the of the discussion because this feels so lynchian to me and like kind of bargain basement lynch but it feels like kind of like this weird extension of inland empire like these are the cut scenes from inland empire or something you know it's just it's so oh now i'm intrigued well i know uh rena riffles works with david lynch she's in mulholland drive and it definitely feels like an influence on this. I mean, it is so strange <laughs> that it, it just intrigued me the whole way through. Like, I, I didn't think when I saw that this was 145 minutes that I would be able to sit through the entire thing. But I was just compelled because it just keeps taking those strange turns. Like, yeah, the cult and all of these things where it's just like, what the fuck am I watching? Just over and over again, I kept asking myself that because it just felt like we were kind of diving into new adventures and uh, almost like a new movie every, what, 20 minutes or so? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, I mean, I have to give it some high, high points for just a complete willingness to just go, just to, t- it's almost like mini movies. And, you know, because yeah. at one point there's like, she stumbles on a woman who just murdered somebody and all of a sudden it's a horror movie now or, or wait a minute. Now she's with, cause it has Shelly Michelle who I think is best known for being like a famous Hollywood body double back in the nineties. And she pops up and I guess she's the approximation to crystal in this film, but they had, they recreate the pool scene. Um, however, Rena, you know, she's just, she, she doesn't, she gives it the tallest try, but she doesn't look like she's got rickets or anything in the pool. So, uh, which is probably a good thing. I'm not, you know, it's not a complaint on my part, but I mean, you could make this film a drinking game with any time there's a reference to the original, right down to like Jimmy opening a new business where he's starting a line of t-shirts that says life sucks, which is that whole line between him and Elizabeth <laughs> Berkeley. Uh, it's, it is, it is honestly, it is truly bizarre. I, I don't think I could say it's a good movie, but um, but I give it points for just being balls out. Like we're gonna do this. Uh, the music. Oh my! God. At one point, there's like a, a like a, a showgirl strip strippery. I don't think it's a full on strip number, but very strippery number set to the Nutcracker Suite, but like <laughs> this MIDI version of it almost. Like I don't think it's true MIDI, but it's close. And I mean, it's just. <laughs> it boggles. It's, I, I, you know, if cocaine was the drug of choice for Showgirls One, I would say airplane glue was the drug of choice for Showgirls Two, or perhaps some mild psychedelics. <laughs> wow, I'm legitimately more interested in watching this than ever rewatching Showgirls. I actually would recommend that you check it out. It is something to be experienced. This is true. This is true. I mean, you um, you love it or hate it. You cannot say you've ever seen anything like it. Um, and Jay, you might e- you might either love Mike and I after watching it and be like, I'm so glad they <laughs> recommended it, or you're going to be like, fuck them. Like, how dare they? I <laughs> so you're it's gonna you're gonna feel either love or hate towards us. So. <laughs> I guess my biggest question would be why was it made? I mean, Showgirls is a notorious flop, so it's not really trying to cash in on the name recognition. Well, you know, you say that though, Showgirls is now actually due to home video, like MGM's number, part of their top 20 all time money makers. Like that movie made its profit back and more on home video due to the whole cult success of it. I mean, it's weird. It flopped big time theatrically, but uh, when it went to DVD and VHS, it soared. 
Showgirls 2 kind of reminds me of the Creamer painting. It's kind of a, <laughs> a loathsome, offensive brute, yet I can't look away. <laughs> oh, wait, that's perfect. It is something. I'm just fancy that they got four people from the movie. It, it, to me, it almost felt like a mini Showgirls reunion. I kept, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't get Len Tucci, who was Mama Bazoom in it. That's all they were missing. They just need Mama Bazoom to come back. Well, she's doing Orange is the New Black now. She's busy. She's got a real career. She's yeah, <laughs> she's she's, she's on that show and she's great on it. <laughs> well, oh man. But yeah, yeah, I wish yeah, see the, the sequel also should have had Robert Davi in it. But I think again Davi's probably doing something that's, you know, a little more above ground, assuming. But I would I'm say s- every movie would benefit from having Robert Davi in it, so a- Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Something to be experienced, that's for sure. All right, well, with that, let's take another break and play an interview with the director and writer of Showgirls 2, Rena Riffle. How did you get your start in the business? I started coming down to L.A. taking um, commercial acting classes, and that was when I was, I think, 18, 17, 18 years old. I just stuck with it and finally got an agent, and that's, that's how I got in this business. What were some of your early roles like? Well, actually, Showgirls was one of my first parts. That's quite a beefy role for a first part. Yeah, I I got one part before that in a movie that it didn't really get released. And it's called Art Deco Detective, and it was a lead in that film. And it was um, a dark comedy. But that film helped me get Showgirls. What was that experience like for you working on Showgirls, especially so early in your career? Oh, it was amazing. It was that feeling that I think a lot of actors, you know, they come to L.A. and you're trying to get that big break. That's what it felt like. Like I landed this amazing part in this huge film with Paul Verhoeven directing. So exciting. What was your relationship like with some of the actors and actresses on on screen with you? Everyone was, was just really excited and supportive. And we we're all just trying to do the best job we could. We had a lot of dance rehearsal, and so that's really where we spent the most time together. Had you had dance experience before that? Yeah, and that was another thing. I came to L.A. You know, as a teenager wanting to be a professional dancer, so I started pursuing that at first, but um, you know, that was my first love. But I think um, you know, having the dance background definitely helped me get the part in Showgirls. What was it like working with uh, Paul Verhoeven? I've heard that he can be a little intense. He was very nice. I thought he was great. He was very nice. And, yeah, there were times where we were running behind schedule, which would happen because all the setups were very complicated and he wanted the perfect lighting. So I remember, yeah, a few times he'd be like, you know, hurry up, everyone. But, But that was just, you know, for the crew like to the actors he was just very gentle and sweet and kind and supportive so it was a great experience it must have been interesting you being you know pretty young at the time you know one of your first roles and this being like elizabeth berkeley's big breakout having been in television before that and here she is in this starring role mm-hmm. what was she like to work with she really gave it her all just her commitment to the part of course like you you see it on screen she gave 100% so she was just 
she was very serious about the role and, and yeah, she just tried really hard and, and gave it her all. She was very nice and professional. I was really impressed with how hard she worked and she would be there at five in the morning for our call time, just enthusiastic and excited. And, and of course I admired her at the time, you know, how she was so free about doing the nude scenes because, you know, of course that is very uncomfortable. It's, I don't think it's, you know, an easy thing to do, but, but she knew that that was part of the, the role for her. And so she was just very professional, but just did it, you know, because sometimes people like actresses will, you know, feel uncomfortable or throw a fit or whatever, but, you know, she knew that that was part of the movie. Now, I know you were, you know, kind of joking around, but also kind of serious when you're listing off some of your credits early on, you know, actress, producer, director, but yes, you've done so much model, uh, yeah. singer in, yeah. I read that one of your songs is actually in showgirls. Yeah. I, I pursued a music career for a long time. I've at this point, I've kind of given up on that Avenue, which I'm happy about, but, um, yeah, at the time I just, yeah, I loved being a songwriter and singer. And so I got a song in the film called Deep Kiss and a, a small part of it is played during Elizabeth's lap dance scene, like right before she does her lap dance. How did you manage to get one of your own songs on the soundtrack? That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, I just gave um, the music supervisor my cassette tape because <laughs> that's what we had back then. And um, yeah, and it was a demo that I had done and and she said, you know, well, she can't do me any favors, but she'll play it for Paul Verhoeven. And if he likes it, then, you know. And then she told me, um, you know, that he actually loved it and she didn't tell him it was me. But then she played it for everyone in her office. And she's like, you guys, do you, you know, do you think this song is any good? Um, and she didn't tell him it was me. And they all said that they liked it. So... Yeah, that's how it happened. I remember I was so excited about that because I thought, you know, it would lead to a record deal, of course. I'm happy that it's in the movie and and my song credit is right below the symbol for Prince. Yeah, that's got to feel good. Yeah, it's, it's a nice accomplishment. One of your next biggest roles, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was being in striptease. Yes, did you feel like you're going to be doomed to be in stripper-slash-showgirl-type movies for the rest of your career? I didn't at the time. Yeah, I was just excited when I heard about that film because it was, striptease was kind of, it was pretty much getting the same kind of publicity and hype as showgirls. It was going to be like the next big thing. And I heard about it on TV, actually, because they did something about how Demi Moore was going to be the highest paid actress, you know, in history. Then I told my agent, you know, try to get me in on this film. And so I, they got me an audition and then I had a call back and then I got that. And it, you know, once again, it, there was a dance audition, even though it wasn't as intense as the showgirls 
dance audition. That one was kind of like an advanced technique dance audition for jazz. And then this one, we had to go in and choreograph our own routine. And then that was the dance audition process. Were you able to use some of the stuff that you had learned in Showgirls for striptease? No, actually. No, I just pretty much did a jazz dance in the striptease audition. And um, I was doing, you know, pirouettes, and which is, I don't think, like in the strip clubs, that they actually do pirouettes. But that's, Not that that's I've seen I, no. Yeah, I was kind of, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to show off. But actually, um, Marguerite Derricks, she was the choreographer for Showgirls. And then when I went to the callback, there was Marguerite, you know, sitting there with the producers. And she was the choreographer for for striptease as well. Can I ask you, what was it like working in Mulholland Drive? That was great. I had just that small part, but it was, you know, supposed to be a TV series. So I was going to be on the TV series and I was going to be introduced in the pilot episode. And, um, yeah, that's what, you know, what they told me. So, um, but I'm, I'm just happy. I'm, I'm, I'm still in the movie <laughs> the scene. One of my scenes stayed in the, in the film, but yeah, that was, that was great. I, I loved it. It was amazing working with David Lynch and, um, yeah, I'm happy I'm in Mulholland Drive. I've always been curious about the way that that was shot as far as the way that it made that transition from TV pilot to the final movie that we all saw. Mm-hmm. Did you come back for reshoots or were there more things that were shot with you that ended up on the cutting room floor or how did that work for you? Yeah, well, for me, um, they did ask me back for the, the re- well, it wasn't really reshoot, but additional scenes that they were going to shoot. And um, so, yeah, I was set to do that and I signed my contracts and then um, something happened where for some some reason, you know, they ended up not needing me for more. And then I, I found out something, I don't know if it's true or not, but one of the other actors I was supposed to possibly be in a scene with, but then that actor, I won't, I won't say who it is, but um, that actor was unavailable. So um, I, you know, maybe that's what happened, but um there's one more scene, but it's still part of the pink scene. It actually was supposed to take place before that that scene at Pink's. And we are talking about a delivery and there's a package and if they'd picked it up yet and you know, it was something really mysterious and I didn't understand it. So I asked David Lynch, you know, um, what is this package that they're talking about? Because I'm, I'm confused. And and he said, I don't know what the package is. <laughs> he said, I'll I'll figure that out later. <laughs> Which is so great because you know, I think you know we all know that's how he works. He just so yeah. He was still he was just gonna let the story you know tell itself, and he was gonna piece things together later on. That movie is remarkable for having so many attractive blonde ladies in it all at once. Oh, well, thank you. I think he intentionally 
past, I mean, and I've, I've heard this in people's theories before also, but all the blondes look very similar, you know, like they have the same, the same hair cut and then he dressed us very similar. Yeah. Cause you know, the one theory is that we are all actually the same person just in different dimensions or an awake or a dream state. Yeah. The way that you look in that pink scene definitely reminds me of the way that Naomi Watts looks at the end of the film when she's not Betty, you know, not the, the, right. the nice Midwestern girl that we've seen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and David Lynch was, he made sure to try to make me, you know, look really rough. And that was one thing when I was in, in the makeup trailer, he came in to see me and he, he said, Oh no, Rena looks way too, you know, clean and fresh. We have to put bruises on her and grease her hair up, you know, cause yeah, of course I washed my hair and, you know, showing up all nice looking, but yeah, he really wanted, you know, he made it a point and he came back again and I still wasn't messed up enough. So he, yeah, he asked them to make me look even worse. And I remember I was thinking, gosh, because, you know, at that time, I, I wanted to to look good. But then I thought, yeah, this will be cool. Because so far, I've just been doing these parts where, yeah, I'm all like glamorous with the fake eyelashes and all that. So, yeah, I, I appreciated that he was going to do this for me. That was good. I wanted to ask you, what came first, Showgirls the Musical or Showgirls 2? You mean the project that I had started and I talked about online? It was Showgirls the Musical? Yeah, and I think I even saw a clip on YouTube with you in a musical version of Showgirls. Well, there's there's so many, you know, Showgirls parodies that are out. So that could have been... Um, oh, please show- walk me through the, the Showgirls parodies. This I need to know. Oh, yeah. They're just springing up everywhere, especially now. Well, okay, I'll start with what I was doing when I, when I first started doing my Showgirls sequel, parody sequel, I first called it Showgirl the Musical. So I don't know if that's what you saw, but I did shoot a trailer for it. And actually I shot a short film that I didn't, it's not available anywhere. But, um, and then from there I did, you know, the, the full feature film, which came out to be Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. But two years ago, I went to New York and to an off-Broadway theater and participated in Showgirls the Musical. So that could have been what you thought if I was I was singing, possibly. <laughs> that what you thought? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was two years ago. And that was a big hit. It was, you know sold out always. And um, I was there for, I think I was there for six weeks. And what was that like for you, kind of revisiting Showgirls? And and how would Showgirls, the musical, the one that you were creating, would that have been a musical as well? Yeah, at the time I wanted it to be a musical, but then I, I just, I didn't do that. And yeah, my original script that I wrote for it, it did have musical numbers and she would, you know, go into her little dream 
and just break out into a song and dance. And that was my version that was going to take, you know, like $40 million to make it right. And when, after I just, I waited a year and nothing was really coming through for me. So that's when I rewrote the script and that's the, the film that's out now. So yeah, tell me about the production of that. Tell me about Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, so I rewrote the script to be, you know, so something that I could handle doing. And then having my experience from Trasharella, that helped me, of course. The way I would do it is I I broke down the script and with each location, which I messed up, you know, when you're doing a, a very low budget film, it's best not to have like 50 locations. And I'd already had that and it was part of the storyline. So I was like, oh, I can do it, you know. But um, it was really challenging, of course. And and so what I would do is I would book a location and then shoot, you know, every scene that takes place at that location and then just get that over with. And then I would take a week off or even two weeks off and be planning the next location and all the scenes, you know, and the wardrobe and any dance numbers and then... Um, and then shoot that. So that, that's what I did for, it took four months to film the whole movie. There is a really nice level of surreality to the film. And it, I don't know if it's that having worked with Lynch and having that familiarity with him, but the, if it almost feels like there's overtones of like inland empire kind of thing. There is. And that, that is, what I what I do is I make things surreal and it has like a dark kind of feeling <laughs> and mysterious. Yeah, I mean it could have been a Lynch um, influencing me, but it's also what I'm drawn to. So that's just how I express myself. And what was it like getting some of your original castmates back with you? Were they uh reticent at all or were they gung-ho to take part in this oh they were gung-ho they were excited and it was that was so great and so that worked out but yeah they were very supportive and excited to do it and they knew what it what it was and they knew you know that we were having fun and we're just we're celebrating showgirls by doing this also i've actually read different theories as to if it is a sequel or a prequel Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Well, yeah, so I, I don't I don't know. It really it could be either one. You're going to be like Lynch and you'll have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to figure out what I did. Yeah, I don't know what I did. Yeah, the the whole thing, it kind of seems like a dream right now. Like it's so intense working on making a film that, you know, 5 years later you look back on it and you're like, "Oh my god, what was I?" cuz you were so absorbed in this, you know, particular mood and influence. And then five years later, or like Trasherilla, you know, 10 years later, you're kind of a different person and more mature. And and then you look back and, yeah, you have to figure out, you know, what was going on <laughs> at that time. But yeah, I just actually, um, I did a new edit, which I'm realizing as a filmmaker, this is something I... I keep repeating like this pattern. I keep repeating because I did a, another edit of Trasharella as well. 
but so I did a new edit and I, I don't, I don't know if you probably haven't seen it. Have you? No, that's uh, Showgirls 2, The Cut. It's, a, it's 90 minutes. It's a little over 90 minutes long instead of two and a half hours long. And I took out a lot of the like kind of silly punchline comedy. And um, yeah, it just has a whole different feel to it, I think, that it does. That's it. And I have to say, before I forget, some of Glenn Plummer's lines are just amazing. Oh, good. <laughs> hey, we're talking about the H1N1, the swine flu. So oh, good. right. Yeah. Continuing from his other, you know, from showgirls. You know, he was like germaphobe a little bit. But yeah, that's good. Did you have to um, secure rights to use the name showgirls or anything? Or is it just, were you able to take the character and do what you want with it? Or how did that work? I had to get clearance. So I got approval and clearance from, you know, the right people. But I also, you know, made sure that it's definitely a a parody and, you know, so, yeah, it's it's a parody at the end of the day. How were audiences taking it? In the theaters, you know, I had a few really good screenings and the audience, they were cracking up laughing and they, I think they enjoyed it. So that was that was a relief because you never know how how an audience is going to react, you know? Right. And um, I mean, and that's what happened with Showgirls when it first was released, and in the theater, you know, people they saw it as a comedy or they were laughing, where they weren't supposed to laugh. You know, that's kind of what happened during the making of the film we we didn't know it was going to get all these laughs you know we just all were taking it really serious even though there was you know humor and some crazy lines but but for you know showgirls 2 i was i was going for the comedy so um yeah it worked that was good <laughs> now i know some people tried to distance themselves from showgirls when it came out other people, I, I would say you are probably the one who has embraced it the most. Do you think that that's a fairly true statement? Yeah, I think so. I, I've i probably embraced it the most. But there's there's other cast members that, you know, they're, they're fine to show up to a showgirls event, you know. And I even, I even think um, Gina Gershon, she's embraced it. And... If she could, because I, you know, I've shown up to the Peaches Christ event in San Francisco, and she was interested in in showing up. So, um, yeah, I think. And then Elizabeth Berkeley actually, she did show up finally um, to a recent screening. Did you hear about that? I have heard that she's kind of changed her tune a little bit on this, which I'm I'm really glad for. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so yeah, so maybe you know she'll continue to open up about it. And and I recently, um, I mean, like a few days ago, I don't know how old this this interview was, but I think it's pretty new. But Paul Verhoeven, for the you know twenty year anniversary of Showgirls, he did an interview 
and he really opened up about what, like the psychology of where he was going with it and what happened and, and, um, just reveals more than I've ever heard him reveal about what he thinks happened to the film and, and to Elizabeth, you know, in the aftermath of how it was received. So that's interesting. Yeah, I've always felt like that movie had like a target on its back. You know, just I don't know if it was trying to take down Verhoeven after his success for Basic Instinct or the guns were aimed at Joe Esterhaz just because of all the uh, money that he was making on scripts, which was just ridiculous at the time or what it was. But it just seemed like Showgirls never really had a chance. Yeah. Yeah, there was like... There must, or maybe, I mean, yeah, you just never know. But for some reason, it came out and the industry just tore it apart. And yeah, who knows Who knows what happened? I, I mean, I know that um, when Showgirls, like when I got the part, there, there was a time where they lost the financing and then another company came in, the, you know, the company that, that ended up producing it they picked it up. So then we were all told, you know, you know, don't worry, it's, it's a go because the movie was almost canceled for a short time. So yeah, who knows if there was some kind of weird thing that, that happened because yeah, because audiences, I think most audiences actually love the film. I mean, that's what I always hear. I know you're very familiar with camp. A lot of your work is very campy. And I mean that as a compliment, do you think that the movie was supposed to be campy or that it has kind of turned into that over the years? I think that it was meant to be over the top, but I don't think it was intentional camp. And that's actually, you know, what makes it real true camp because, you know, we weren't trying to be ironic and silly, but it happened anyway. I want to ask you, what are those Peaches Christ screenings like? Because I've read about some of her screenings, and it's just like, they sound amazing, but I've never been able to attend one being over here in Detroit. What is it like going to a Peaches Christ screening of Showgirls? Well, it is like a high. The energy level is just intense and incredible, like, fun everyone is going wild and crazy and and um it's just it's amazing it's really great you have a great time and it's just crazy like um there there is uh, I, I don't know if they call them well basically they're lap dancers and she gets volunteers and they go out into the audience and do this lap dance like all over the place and um it's just hysterical it's everyone is laughing and participating and it's it's just really fun what are some of the things that you're working on these days well i have a few different projects one is that i just moved back to la so i'm i'm going to start auditioning and get an agent i have to basically start all over as an actress and but i'm really excited about this I just moved back here a few days ago. Other than that, I'm I'm working on a novel that I'm writing. I'm painting, and at the moment, I'm not working on a new 
film that I will be at some point. I'm just kind of giving it a break right now. I have a, a new film that I made called Astrid. I'm still working on it, but it's a self-portrait basically of a crazy woman, which I play. And she just loses her mind while she's making her self-portrait avant-garde film. I also read that you had directed one called My Wife is at Home. Is that? Yeah, I made that as well. And it's very avant-garde, like really long takes. And it's more of an installation, I'm thinking. It's not, it, you know, it's not commercial at all. But yeah, I, I completed that film. And I still love music. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll think like, oh, I would love to just write a song and it's fun going in the studio and, you know, making music. But yeah, I'm just, I'm doing so many things. I have to, I have to limit them because I get spread thin. So yeah, I'm going to give music a break. Are you big on the uh, social media and blogging and all that? I love it. I I would like to do it more. I've, I've started a few blogs and then I end up like, I stop them because it's a lot of work. So, um, but yeah, it's like I, I want to have a fashion blog. I would love to do that. And um, I'm on Instagram, which I need to I need to get a million followers on Instagram, or at least at least a thousand. Well, what is your Instagram handle so I can uh, promote you and see if we can get you at least one more follower? It's just Rena Riffle. Twitter is Cinema Rena. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Mike. All right, we're back and we're talking about showgirls. So, guys, really, at the end of the day, would you recommend that people who haven't seen this one check it out or people that have seen it, should they go back and experience showgirls again? Is there enough there to do that? That's a good question. I think if you haven't, if if you're someone that is interested in sort of cinema that is campy but tonally weird and you're a fan of Paul Verhoeven and Robert Davi, and Gina Gershon, I would recommend it. Otherwise, you probably won't enjoy it. Um, if you've already seen it, then you probably know the answer to that question. Because if you've already seen it once, you're going to know whether or not you want to go back to it. Some people love this movie and have shrines to it. Other people, obviously, like you know, are like, I'm good. I don't need to see that again. So, uh, <laughs> so that would be my, my answer. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I don't think it's it's necessarily worthy of reappraisal. If you've seen it, you kind of know what to think about it. If you've never seen it, it's one of the most famous, you know, flops ever. It's it's worth seeing at least once. Um, it's it's interesting now that uh, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley has sort of come around to embracing it because I know she was embarrassed by it for such a long time. But there's a clip on YouTube now of her introducing it at some screening in L.A. and I guess it's good that she's embracing it now, but I, I still think it might be too soon for her to re-embrace it because her performance in it is legitimately embarrassing. Like still to this day, not the nudity or anything, but just like her dancing is is creepy and and it's it's a 
bad performance <laughs> just all around. Well, my question, is it a bad performance or is it bad writing? Because I, I kept thinking that, too, because on one hand, I'm like, this is a terrible performance. But then there are moments where I'm just like, I don't know what else you would do with that role as an actress, because it's the way it's written, the way Nomi is written. I, You know, she's written so bipolar and just, I mean, she's like Yosemite Sam, you know, with titties. It, it's just, it doesn't, it, it, I don't, I don't know. Like you would have to be like the female equivalent to Robert Dobby, like Susan Tyrell. I would watch Susan, you know, Susan Tyrell could probably make that good, but. Holy shit. That would be amazing. Oh Showgirl starring I, Susan Tyrell. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, 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 that's what heaven is for right there. It's all the movies that should have been made. But, uh, I do wonder uh, though, how much is the writing and how much is the performance? Like, is it in Joe Esterhouse's script that she violently throws around French fries <laughs> or is that a, an actor's choice? I think that'll go down with the whole, is Hayden Christensen a bad actor or was it just George Lucas's writing kind of debate? Ah. Well, I, chalk that, I chalk everything up. Is if there's anything wrong with anything related to George Lucas, it's George Lucas's fault. But that, but see, that'd be another tie to Girl in Gold Boots because you you have this character who makes it ascends to the top of the go go girl pile, and her da- her her dancing is highly questionable. So, I'm just gonna view it as a tribute to Ted V. Michaels. Why not? Yeah, I really. I mean, I've been courting Verhoeven for an interview for probably two years now. Like before we even did our our Starship Troopers episode, probably all the way back when we did our RoboCop episode, which I think was like the second or third episode of the Projection Booth. And we tried like hell to get Elizabeth Berkeley. I even tried to play the local angle because like I go by her high school like you know every day on my way to work practically. So she lived right near where where i work now and all this kind of stuff so i was really trying to like you know hey local show come on support kind of no and then even with robert davi like we've even interviewed robert davi before (laughs) though my co-host managed to lose the file at the time for for um tracks was that the name of the uh, oh god what was that is that shadow stevens track yes the shadow oh my god (laughs) i've never seen that Oh, it's it's something. It's definitely <laughs> something. Um, it, it's Tarantino's favorite episode of the Projection Booth. Just say it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I have to go back and so, listen to it. Did you interview Shadow <laughs> Stevens at least? Well, we interviewed Shadow Stevens and we interviewed Robert Davi, and both of those interviews managed to get deleted uh, somehow. That's unfortunate. Oh. Yes, it was a very very sad state of affairs. Oh my goodness, what was Davi like? He was a great guy. He even went back and uh, recorded, professionally recorded his little, like, you know, this is Robert Davi and you're in the projection booth. And, and so we've got one of those clips of him saying that. And it's just gorgeous. You know, he's got those those great tones to his voice and everything. Even, you know, he sounds like he's singing even when he's not. He's got that mellifluous voice. But, yeah, so we tried all these people. And, unfortunately, you know, nobody would talk to the projection booth about it, though. And in the interim, while I'm trying to get Verhoeven, that's when he did, like, I think it was down in Florida. He went finally on the record talking all about showgirls and stuff. And it's just like, God damn it. Why? Why couldn't we have that? I, I didn't know he had done that. Is that uh, what is that for a podcast or? No, it was a, a, a um, appreciation of his work. They're doing a retrospective. Okay. Is that? Can you find that online somewhere? 
I don't think so, but I know there's an article about it. So I will definitely be linking to the article when I post this episode. Okay, yeah, because I've always been curious about how he feels about this movie. And the, the thing that always kills me, and I don't know why I can't remember this for the life of me, I always think that this was his last U.S. movie. Like, he went into hiding after this. But no, no. <laughs> More stuff after this one because there were a lot of people that just disappeared after Showgirls happened, like <laughs> Esther House, like never, you know, rode again as far as we know. Yeah. yeah, Elizabeth Berkeley went into hiding for a long time. You know, it wasn't until First Wives Club that she kind of came back and was okay to show her face. And people are like, wow, she's actually an okay actress in this. <laughs> so there were a lot of pe- folks that just. Didn't want to talk about this movie. Didn't want to support it. They were all about it before, but as soon as it opened and people either didn't get the joke or just, you know, saw what it was for what it was, yeah, people just, you know, were like, okay, I'm going to distance myself from this movie for a long darn time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, one thing that is interesting, and to me this gives Verhoeven major, like, points of slack is that when the, this film won a bunch of Razzies, he actually was the first director to ever show up to the award ceremony and pick it up. So he obviously, I think, has a sense of humor. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, about it. And uh, just looking at, because I, I got curious about Esther House, because I, I, I kept thinking, I'm sure he, I knew he did something after this. Yeah, he did a film, well, he wrote a film called Burn Hollywood Burn. Oh, I, oh that's right. That's the yeah. worst thing. It's so which bad. Is, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's the one directed by Alan Smithy. So, um, well, it was a movie about Alan Smithy, and then it ended up turning out so bad that the director took his name off. So it l- literally became an Alan Smithy movie. Yeah, and I think that's what put an end to the whole Alan Smithy name, if memory serves. I think wow. so. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, Arthur Hiller, if memory serves, and he was just like, yeah, no. <laughs> Not doing it. That's that's amazing to think of a film so horrible that it actually killed the Alan Smithy trend. That is, <laughs> yeah. that's astounding. That's wow. Let's just have a moment of silence for that. <laughs> I was really hoping when I came back to this because I, I said we've covered this is actually our third Verhoeven film that we've done on the show and we've done RoboCop and we've done Starship Troopers and I was really hoping that when I came back to Showgirls I would have that kind of Starship Troopers epiphany and just be like oh my god this is a terrific film why did I just never see this and why did I have these horrible memories of this film burned to my brain for 21 years well unfortunately I just didn't have that epiphany uh, well, they can't all be winners, you know. I mean, Ver- Verhoeven's filmography is pretty, as a whole, I'd say, very stellar. So he's kind of allowed to have a few missteps. I mean, in this film, at least, I mean, it's entertaining, and uh, you know, it's 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 not a great film, but uh, you know, they're not they're not all going to be spatters. So what can you do? <laughs> and I would say he rebounded pretty strongly after this. With uh, with Starship Troopers. Well, with Starship Troopers, a black book. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen um, Tricked yet, uh, and I know he's got another new one coming out pretty soon. But yeah, I mean, he he, he managed to do it. I mean, I would say that Hollow Man's definitely another uh, black mark on his record, but he he makes up for it with things like Total Recall and those. Absolutely. All right, so let's take our final break here, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. This summer, Bruce Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, tough guy. And business is booming. 
I was afraid you weren't going to drop by. Hudson Hawk. That excites me. Check, please. The best cat burglar that ever lived. I didn't want to do it. All I wanted was a cappuccino. But he can't retire. Maybe nobody told you. I quit stealing. If he wants to keep on living. This is a brand new tuxedo! Watch your step. Hold your breath. Hang on for dear life. And catch the hawk. Good play, Junior. Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, Hudson Hawk. Sounds like a party. That's right. We are back next week to talk about another infamous film, Hudson Hawk. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Heather. What have you been up to lately? I just published an article on the post-punk band Suburban Lawns on Dangerous Minds, which is one of the sites I write, I regularly write for. And I'm currently working on an article about Roger Watkins' corruption. Uh, those, are, those are kind of the two main things, in addition to books and other sundries. How about you, Jay? What's the latest over at Red Letter Media? Uh, well, we're still doing our show Half in the Bag. We are now we, – we just recently did our 100th episode, and we're still wow. still going for some reason. Uh, but we also uh, just released our film Space Cop, which has been three three years in the making. So it's now on Blu-ray and and digital and all that. So you can get that on our website. Awesome. Space Cop is the story uh, of a cop from the future of space that travels back in time. Now, the future of space, not just from the future, and he's in space. He's, he's from the future of space. Wow! And he loves okay. hot dogs. Well, who doesn't? Yes. Right. Actually, there's a great hot dog scene in uh, Showgirls too. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where they just discuss hot dogs, or do they act like like the pub doggy chow scene, or do they actually eat hot dogs? Yeah, I think you're just gonna have to watch it for yourself. Yeah. Jay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I want to now. You've heard of the phrase "burning the candle at both ends." It's kind of like that. Oh, okay. It's burning it, yeah. the hot dog at both ends. Yeah. Wait a <laughs> You've seen Requiem for a Dream, right? Oh, God. Mike, no. <laughs> it's, he's going to be disappointed now. <laughs> does, does Keith David show up? Because if not, then no. I will be disappointed. Unfortunately, he doesn't show up, nor does he take anything out for air. Okay. Yeah. Jay, I got to ask you, and, and if I need to leave this part off the record, I, I certainly will. What was that whole Max Landis thing like? What was it like as far as actually meeting him in person and all that? Or? Well, I guess let, let's set it up a little bit here. So you guys, you did an amazing review of what the hell was that movie called? American, American Ultra. Yeah, American Ultra. I almost called it American Splendor, but that was a good movie. American <laughs> Ultra. And next thing I know, you're announcing, hey, here's our interview with Max Landis, where he's basically coming on to tell us that we're wrong about American Ultra. Yeah. So what did he do, like tweet at you and manage to he, well, uh, fly in on his personal drone or something? <laughs> uh, well, it's supposedly, not supposedly, but he is, you know, a fan of ours, and he's been watching our stuff for a while, I guess, and he was disappointed in our opinions of American Ultra because that's a movie that he apparently is rather proud of how it turned out. He often talks about how he feels very distant from the process. Like as a writer, you're not on 
set or anything like that. So, you know, oftentimes you write a thing, someone else makes it, and the end result may be nothing close to what you wanted it to be. But that's one where he feels that the movie was an accurate reflection of his script. So when we kind of tore it apart, he felt kind of disappointed by that. So he made some tweets about how he felt disappointed by it. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'm not surprised they like Jurassic World, which is only half true. I didn't like Jurassic World. And, and for some reason, people interpreted that as us having a feud, even though we never responded. We never talked about it. It's just him saying, oh, I'm disappointed they didn't like the movie. But then we just reached out to him and be like, hey, you want to fly to Milwaukee and we'll shoot some stuff? And he said, sure. So he, he flew out and we shot that interview where we gave him a chance to kind of say his side of the story of, you know, screenwriting and what it's like to work in Hollywood as a screenwriter and and how distant you feel from the final movie and all that stuff. But, yeah, people kind of interpreted that we were having some sort of feud and then the interview was like us making up but there was never a feud nor did i really feel like the interview was you guys making up which i really appreciated that it wasn't like oh my god we're so embarrassed that we have this guy here whose movie we were kind of critiquing no we can you know you can you can critique someone's work and still talk to them as a human being like there were some people that seemed to be disappointed that we didn't like you know rip him a new asshole to his face but it's like why would we do that he just wrote a movie we didn't like i thought it was very nice of him to come out and that it was very nice of you guys to give him the time and everything and i thought it was a terrific terrific episode of uh oh just the interview or the uh because we also yeah. did a best of the worst episode with him too you know i haven't seen the best of the worst one with him i'll have to watch that oh, okay yeah that's you know that's more casual obviously it's just us hanging out and watching bad movies but no, he was a he was a good sport, and he's you know he he talks a lot. He's very passionate, but he's ultimately he's just a, a movie nerd like us that just happens to be a part of that world, which we're very much on the outside of that world. So, where can folks go to find out more about you and your work, and to buy copies of Space Cop? Uh, you can go to redlettermedia.com or uh, YouTube.com/slash redlettermedia. Well, thanks again, guys, for joining me in this very enlightening discussion about Showgirls. We'll have links to where our listeners can find out more about you guys, Jay and Heather, over at our website, projection-booth.com. Head on over, rate and review the show, give us some of your hard-earned cash via our Patreon, or just leave some feedback. Those are just a few more ways that you can help us take over the world.
You have great tits. They're really beautiful. Thank you. I like nice tits. <laughs> I always have. How about you? I like having nice tits. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.